The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste are delicious and collide. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't have a cool nickname because I'm not cool. Uh, I, when you I'm said tired that, of fighting you on this. I think you're cool. I think you're a groovy dude. Well, thank you. It's sweet of you to say so. You inspire so. joy, I, I joy have, feelings and all I, those around you. I, I have, uh, have you all, I have you all fooled. Um, when you said good taste and bad taste are delicious, what do you say? Or they taste good? Yeah, when you put them together, they average yeah. out, okay? I, I, I was, good taste and bad taste. Put them together, tastes fine. I was just wondering if, if you would put in some sort of like delicious kind of sound effect no i'm gonna mix in something no i'm way too lazy for that right now. <laughs> like mm, that sort of mm, thing no you made a yummy oh maybe i'll put in like the frankenstein noise like <laughs> oh you made a yummy noise i didn't make a yummy noise anyway this is critically acclaimed we review new movies here at the critically acclaimed network on this show it's called critically acclaimed man <laughs> And uh, this week, uh, we're a little late, but by God, we're having an episode, uh, and uh, we're reviewing the new releases, Tom and Jerry, Wrong Turn, The United States versus Billie Holiday, My Money is on Billie Holiday, Jerry, and in the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we review older films, uh, because if we're watching everything on streaming, we shouldn't only focus on the new stuff, mm. and all of them are voted on by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We're reviewing Starman on Amazon Prime. Uh, it is a film by John Carpenter that doesn't get as much love as a lot of the other ones, uh, but um, it's pretty cool, and it's a movie that I actually haven't seen since I was a kid. And, really? Uh, we, okay. We, we did a we did an episode of your critically acclaimed last year. Where we focused on all the films on John Carpenter, and this was the one that I kind of sat out a little bit, just because mm. I haven't seen this one in a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, I turns out I actually have had very vague memories of it, and I have opinions. <laughs> we will talk about um, those later. I actually got to rewatch Starman a couple of years ago for another podcast I was on. Um, when Grey Drake was still doing the Popcorn Mafia, oh yeah, uh, she had uh, she had changed the format of the show to be sort of a double feature thing. So watch a new release and then find a good pairing for it. Uh, and the new release was I Am Number Four. Oh yeah, if you remember, I remember that movie? That was Alex Pettifer um, and um, and uh, what's her face who looks like Kristen Stewart? It's the it's the uh, lady Ter- from Lights Ter- Out, Teresa something, Teresa Ter- Teresa Palmer, Palmer. Teresa Palmer, Palmer. There you was go. in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Alex Pettifer, Teresa Palmer, boy comes from space, is being chased, doesn't, is, has been raised on Earth, doesn't know he's like an alien lord and is being chased down by other evil aliens. We paired it with Starman, so I got to see that again kind of, within the last few years. And then I watched it again for this podcast. Uh, I like Starman a lot, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. Cool. Uh, but uh, first and foremost, 
Got to talk about these new films. All these newfangled films that are always coming out. And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest news stories in the industry towards the end of last year was the announcement from Warner Brothers that this year, all of the films that they had pushed back, all of the major theatrical mm-hmm. releases that they had planned to put out, uh, are going to debut simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. And that means that people who subscribe to HBO Max won't have to leave their house to see on opening day films like Wonder Woman 1984, mm-hmm. the new Matrix movie, the, the, new Dune, the new Godzilla film, yeah, Godzilla versus King Kong, and of course, the one we were all really looking forward to, Tom and Jerry. The, the Tom and Jerry movie. Um, Tom and Jerry is uh, an animated institution going way back to the 30s. Uh, is it really that far? Or, or maybe, maybe 1940. Uh, they debuted pretty early on. A lot, like a lot of these beloved characters, their earlier ones when things were a little bit more chaotic. Yeah. 1940. 1940. Yeah, that's when they uh, were. Uh, I, I think those are their be- That's those are the best Tom and Jerry cartoons. As a kid, Tom and Jerry always made me really uncomfortable hmm. because the characters hated each other. Yeah, there's a lot of violence. Not, yeah, just, no, not just not just physical violence because that was everywhere, mm-hmm. but there was animosity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you watch, uh, I mean, there's plenty of violence in a Roadrunner cartoon, but the coyote's doing that to himself. That mm-hmm. that That is a, a series of cartoons about hubris. And and the coyote doesn't hate the Roadrunner mm-hmm. and everything he stands for, mm-hmm. nor does the Roadrunner hate the coyote. They're just part of a paradigm. Yeah. Uh, Tom and Jerry, Tom is the cat, Jerry is the mouse. Uh, you know, they're, they're a cat and a mouse. They're like destined to not be close pals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the absolute every Tom and Jerry cartoon basically begins more or less with uh, Jerry is a mouse. He's doing mouse stuff, but he's being smug and destructive about it. Yeah, he's being a dick. And Tom is either increasingly aggravated by Jerry to the point of homicidal violence. And then Jerry ends up inflicting homicidal violence onto Tom. Or, and this is, I think, the the prime, this is like sort of like where Tom and Jerry lives. Hmm. There's this sort of, Jerry's doing his thing, Tom doesn't give a shit. And then it, Tom's owner hmm. says, Tom, you're a cat, you have to get rid of this mouse, or I'm kicking you out. Yeah. And so Tom is, actually has skin in the game. <laughs> so they both are fighting for not just their survival, but for their well-being. Hmm. And as a result, their fighting is somewhat justified. It goes cartoonishly over the top because it's a cartoon, <laughs> but regardless, somewhat justified. And mm. I think that's the sweet spot with Tom and Jerry is that they are violent characters, but at their best, you understand why they're fighting mm. and you don't ha- particularly have a side. I think that's the tricky thing with Tom mm. and Jerry. I think if Jerry is too much the aggressor, then you just feel bad for Tom. And if Tom is particularly the aggressor, then Jerry is just, it's like Bugs Bunny versus Elmer Fudd. No matter mm. how hard Jerry, uh, Tom is trying, Jerry's always going to have the upper hand. Mm. So for the best Tom and Jerry, the best Tom and Jerry cartoons are the sweet spots. Mm. And I still think the best one ever is uh, the one where uh, Tom is playing the piano. Oh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a classic, I think it won an Academy Award, where uh, Tom is playing a piano and Jerry was living in the piano. And so every time Tom hits a key, a hammer hits a, a chord mm. and it upsets Jerry. So Jerry starts fighting back in the piano, wreaking havoc with Tom's performance. Okay. That's a brilliant but, cartoon. But I, I don't think I know that one. You don't actually. know that yeah. one? Oh my God. I'm going to look that one up. I'm gonna make sure I want to I mm. make sure I send you a link to but it or to, something. 
Tom and Jerry have been weird. Like they, thanks to the gods of Saturday morning and the way cartoons were licensed, uh, a lot of these cartoon shorts made their way into heavy rotation on television all throughout the the sixties and seventies. The Cat Concerto. The Cat Concerto through the sixties and seventies, eighties and nineties. You just kept on seeing Tom and Jerry pretty much in heavy rotation all throughout your childhood, no matter what age you are. Mm Uh, they tried turning Tom and Jerry into a feature film in the early 90s, mm-hmm. which was uh, widely panned and rejected because Tom and Jerry spoke. Yeah. They had speaking lines. They had voices uh, in all of their cartoons. They didn't speak. Tom would scream when he was in yeah. pain. That's there was occasionally was like one joke line where mm-hmm. they would, but it was always the joke was, oh my God, they talked for a second. That was weird. Yeah. Don't, but don't you believe it? That sort of thing. Never mm-hmm. understood that gag. <laughs> there's one gag where just all of a sudden Tom looks to the camera and in this deep like sonorous like e- echoing e- voice e- yeah. booming voice don't you believe it never understood it I think it was a reference to um, like a, a stage magician of some kind maybe but, I don't know um, it's like the reference has been lost to time and so now it's just kind of surreal uh, over the years, Tom and Jerry, their, their most recent cash cow over the last 15 or 20 years or so, Tom and Jerry have been inserted into other movies. Oh, so weird. It's this new trend. Like you here, we're going to like remake Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, but we're going to have it from Tom and Jerry's perspective. Yeah. It's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And if you're not familiar mm. with that play, it's by mm. Tom Stoppard, mm. uh, who in Hollywood is probably best known for writing Shakespeare in love. Uh, but uh, it's a play that is from the, it's, it's Hamlet, but from the perspective of two characters who only have a couple of scenes mm-hmm. and they see the entire play from their perspective. So you're seeing the exact same story with the exact same characters, but just from another corner of the room. And the Willy Wonka, Tom and Jerry cartoon is basically Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I think Alan Tudyk plays Willy Wonka. It's actually not bad casting. Weird. And um, turns out Tom and Jerry were there the whole time. What do we get out of that? Fuck all. <laughs> it is an awful motion picture. Like it has, it's, it, it's so weird. It's like there's some movies that seem to only exist so that a studio or a corporation or whatever can keep an intellectual property or yeah. keep it alive in some way just so we can say we used it. Well, the, and to, to elucidate on that a bit, uh, if, if a studio owns a property, but they don't, they can't just sit on it indefinitely. Mm. There, well, depends on what usually, their deal is. There's but, usually yeah. some sort of stipulation or deal that they have to turn it into some kind of property in order to retain the rights. That's why they, you'll see a film like Van Helsing every once in a while. Yeah. Universal needs to retain the rights to some of those characters. Well, the visual rights, anyway, because yeah. some of them are, a lot of them are in public domain, but mm. the trademarkable versions. Uh, or uh, Hellraiser. There's a reason every once in a while there's a Hellraiser straight-to-video mm. sequel that nobody gives a crap about. And most <laughs> of them are really, really bad. It's just they're trying to keep the rights to Hellraiser mm. so that eventually they can do something good with it. Why is it taking so <laughs> So long. Just it's do not it now. Good, make a good one. What are you doing? Cl- Clive Barker has written another one. I know they're working they, on it. They've, they, been, they've been. They're talking about doing like another big one. Look, and hopefully, it comes out the ground. You could fill a canyon with abandoned Clive Barker film projects. Oh, There's true. been like dozens and dozens of those things. Anyway, uh, for whatever reason, Warner Brothers decided now was the time to do the big one. We've done all these straight to video Tom and Jerry things. All of these really innocuous and bland TV reboots. Remember Tom and Jerry Kids? Oh yeah. I barely do. I watched it a lot. Like, it's just gone. It's vapor. Uh, They're not the interesting versions of the characters. And I don't think... I actually was realizing this as I was watching this movie. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think I've seen a good Tom and Jerry anything since like the early 60s. Well, even when Chuck Jones uh, left Warner Brothers and started making Tom and Jerry cartoons, even those ones aren't good. They're not very good. No. I'm, I'm allowing that maybe there's some good ones that I've forgotten, but mm. no, I think it's mostly like the early theatrical shorts like, yeah, yeah, that, like, that, like they're from MGM. Mm. Like many of those were very good. Some of them were not. Many of them were. Mm. Um, and I just think they're just characters who... Warner Brothers or whoever has owned the rights over the years. I don't know if it was always Warner Brothers after MGM, but uh, well, they they're, they're the Hanna Barbera creation. Yeah, so. but like I don't Hanna Barbera doesn't. You know, they, they threw MGM in other places, That's so true. Uh, it could have changed hands. My point is, I don't know if the people who've had the rights to Tom and Jerry have known what the fuck they have. I think they just know they have recognizable characters, hmm. and they should do something with them. And it's driving me up the wall <laughs> to see just these. Boring ass fucking things that are just being <laughs> made. Just, they're trying to milk them and milk them, and, yeah, they're, they're, and they're already dead. And they're, but they're not trying to make good milk. ones. Like they're, they're, no, I'm um, sure there are animators out there mm. who would like pull out their back teeth for an opportunity to just take control of Tom and Jerry yeah, and I do know, some um, really great, gloriously animated, yeah, funny like, cartoons uh, with them again. Like the, Gendy Tartakovsky, <sighs> who did uh, the uh, the Hotel Transylvania movies, and also like, Samurai Jack and some other uh, really notable. Yeah. Uh, TV animation. Uh, he's a big fan of Popeye, yeah. especially the early Popeye stuff. And he's and he's been trying really hard to get another an animated Popeye film made for the longest time, and just nobody's listening to that guy. It's like, no Popeye, really, seriously, and everyone's like, no. I did some of it. Okay, that's enough. Some of those early Popeye cartoons are still amazing. they are masterpieces, stunning. The one where uh, you can get uh, the, the Popeye films from the '30s. Those ones yeah, are great. The one where uh, olive oil is sleepwalking has some amazing <laughs> has some amazing no, uh, or... d- uh, perspective gags mm. in that one. Just like you won't believe it, uh, Sinbad the Sailor. They yeah, did this, yeah they the did Sinbad this, the Sailor one is really good. They did this incredible. Uh, it, seriously, watch the Popeye Sinbad cartoon. It's astounding. They created like a new form of animation that uh, put the 2D animation that we all know and recognize into like live action sets. And it's not just the same as like drawing on it. They did like capture, like they, they, they rigged the camera correctly mm. so it would move the right way. And um, just fucking astoundingly cool looking cartoon. Nice. nice. Um, uh, my point being, surely there's uh, like a famous animator out there working who is a big Tom and Jerry fan. And would do something really interesting with Tom and Jerry. I'm sure there are a bunch. I, th- I think the problem, though, is that Tom and Jerry are such a, a simple, stripped-down premise that you can't really do a lot with the characters. Mm-hmm. And I will say that this film, directed by Tim Story, who is uh, probably best known for those Fantastic Four movies. And Barbershop. I and, think that's, and, the, that's true. Also I think Barbershop's the movie he did that people liked the most. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with the Fantastic Four movies. They're not great, but I think the tone is fine. I think I actually um, think the second one has some really good stuff in it. Mm. I think it's the first one that's just kind of banal and forgettable. Yeah, the, the, yeah. they don't do they don't do enough like hero stuff. Some of the casting's movie. good. Michael Chiklis mm. and Chris Evans are really really mm. great. Uh, here he, here he is doing a, a Tom and Jerry film, and I think this in twenty in twenty twenty one twenty eleven twenty twenty one this might be kind of the best we can hope for with Tom and Jerry. You shut your mouth. This kind of innocuous the bar family is entertainment. This low. Yes, I think the bar is this I, low. No, I can't believe that. Uh, because, I cannot believe that. Because, you know, come up with the pitch meeting. How do you pitch Tom and Jerry? Okay, they, they live in a modern city. They did it in 2.5D, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, so, which means they're they're uh, realized in CG, but they're made to look like uh, the original pen, versions, pen drawings. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, it's like it's like the, the design the on the, the design fine. on the characters is fine, and yeah. their dynamic is so simple. You need to put something around them True. to to make it into a movie. So of course they they're going to choke it up with a bunch of human characters getting into adventures you don't really care about. Uh, right. That's the part that could have been written. The premise of the movie is uh, Chloe Grace Moretz plays sort of like a, a New York street hustler. Wow, she's so convincing. And uh, <laughs> really miscast in this role. I, I think Chloe Grace Moretz is an incredibly funny actor. Sir, uh, mm. Neighbors 2, she's yeah, hilarious. She's, she's really good in Neighbors she's 2. She's really funny and mm. super talented. And I I can only assume like she's like paying off her college tuition well, what for I'm, this movie. What like, I'm thinking this is she's not doing interesting is, her as a role. is she she's trying to challenge herself and like acting opposite cartoon characters. Can she play a supporting role to a cartoon? Maybe uh-huh. she wanted to, maybe she saw Casper when it came out in ninety five and was like when she was young then and was like was it alive like then? Actually, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't think she was. Maybe not. Uh, okay, choose, choose a better analog for that, that matches right. her age. But um, yeah, yeah, 1997. She, she was, was not alive. <laughs> Casper came out. She was born two years after Casper came out. Uh, but uh, yeah, she she plays this sort of uh, New York City street hustler. She uh, fakes her way into getting a job at a prestigious hotel. Uh, kind of faking her way by stealing someone else's resume kind of by accident. She becomes an employee of the hotel. Uh, she resents the uh, hoity-toity upper crust manager played weirdly by Michael Pena, another weird bit of casting. Yeah. He's game. Yeah. He's actually really good in, he's in a trying. role like this. Yeah, he's but, trying uh, to make it work. Yeah, but it's like, what was, I guess Eric Idle's not going to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> John Cleese was unavailable as well. Alan Cummings busy doing other things. You can't get a British actor. So, hey, why not Michael Pena? He's, he does, he's yeah. just fine. And, uh, the plot, their plot, which is completely uninteresting, is the really high-profile celebrity couple is about to have their wedding at this hotel, mm-hmm. and Chloe Moretz ha- is now has to sort of fake her way through managing this entire thing. Yeah, uh, and the the wild cards are Tom and Jerry, mm-hmm. this cat and mouse who are prone to destroying the the world around them because they're constantly chasing each other and are at odds. Yeah, uh, as a as a framework for a comedy, mm. uh, again, you you've got two. Comic characters who have a shtick. Mm. All they do is try to beat each other up and they wreck shit. That's it. They're essentially the two stooges. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's fine. You you put them in any. Then that's the whole thing of the cartoons. You put them in any situation. You know what they're gonna do, and you're just waiting for it to happen. And it's funny. Case in point, uh, Cat Concerto. Mm. Tom is a concert pianist. Well, I have some idea where this is going, <laughs> and I can't wait to see this piano yeah. get wrecked. Like, that's what you're waiting for. Mm. So it's much like, uh, almost like a Marx Brothers cartoon where you have a bunch of people who are going through a straightforward movie setup, Mm. and then you put in a chaos element that wrecks shit. Yeah. So here we are. We have this really fancy hotel where everything is pristine and perfect. They make a big point out of this glass mezzanine that's super old and we're really proud of. So we know that shit's going to break. <laughs> and uh, and then there's going to be a wedding and everything has to go perfect or we all lose our jobs. And then you introduce cartoon cat and mouse and you just wait for them to break everything. That's fine. Hmm. That is fine. Fine. That's, fine. that's all you need. You need. That's all you need. What's weird about this movie is that they make it weirdly complicated. They had all of these incidental characters. They had all of these side plots about this like fancy married couple who have no friends. They get to this hotel to get and, married, and, and they the, ask the, the hotel staff to be like their their maids of honor and best man. Dude, and, that's like a 
fucking Sofia Coppola tragedy like going on. Like, we're like, that's sad. Oh, wouldn't, dude. It, wouldn't it be great if it was like it was like Chloe Sevigny and Stephen Dorff and like yeah. these are really kind of darker actors who yeah. are playing like playing it for all the angst. That It'd they be could. really funny. The the actors they get to play those characters are Pallavi Shardai, who I'm not super familiar with. She's mm. actually really really good. And um, oh, who's I, the dude? Who's I, the, I, Colin I, Jost from Saturday Night Live, mm. who is not fucking trying no he he is could not come to work that day he, he's not selling any of the jokes or the humor he's playing kind of a, a shallow character yeah but he's and he's got a likable which he's, is weird. he's got a few funny lines but he's not delivering them in a funny way there's a no. bit where uh, they have this sort of virtual golf set up in his room is like wow this virtual golf is great i can see how bad i really am and there's a way to sell that where it's yeah. kind of self-deprecating and funny that's a joke but he just sort of delivers it really flatly yeah, yeah. he's he's really awful just and, and you don't mm. buy their relationships mm. so you don't care if they get back together and of course the whole thing in the movie is we have to save this marriage that marriage is gonna be shit <laughs> nothing in this movie yeah, convinces they're... me that that marriage should be saved they're better off palavi sharda has way more chemistry with chloe grace moretz and i i they're good friends she confides in chloe grace moretz by good friends ex- we mean we met her today yeah <laughs> they met today and now she's gonna be her fucking maid of honor mm. So I, I kept expecting some sort of queerness to come out and like yeah. they, they were, they had a crush on each other, but none of that. I mean, this, yeah. that, that's way, that would have added a, an extra wrinkle to this already com- too complicated movie. I'm just going to say right now, it's my head cannon. It's the, it got me through <laughs> some scenes. That's, that's all the, I can the, say. These two are going to, she's going to break up with her husband and they're going to get together. I feel like uh, they, they also overcomplicated Tom and Jerry. Hmm. Where Tom and Jerry, they all had to be was a cat and a mouse, dude. Like, a mouse has moved into a hotel. Hmm. Mice shouldn't be in well, hotels. Like, yeah. And Tom is basically whisked in off the street to catch the mouse. That's all it needs to be. Instead, we have this weird setup where we see, like, Tom moving to New York with only his keyboard in tow and hmm. trying to make a living on the street with his keyboard. And then Jerry yeah, steals they... money from Tom and then breaks his keyboard, his only possession, his only means of creating art and sustaining himself. <laughs> and now... I'm only on Tom's side. That's it. Jerry never does anything to get me mm. back. You fucking ruined it. All I've I care always, about is Tom killing Jerry because Jerry sucks. I've always hated Jerry. To Jerry, be honest, I've, always, I've, I've, I've never been on Jerry's side. Again, if Jerry's whole thing is Jerry is just trying to go about his business, man, mm. and Tom only has to do this because otherwise he gets kicked out of the house, I think that's the sweet spot. I understand where the book's coming from. When Jerry is the aggressor, mm. all I want is for Tom to eat him. <laughs> yeah. That's it. I, that's um, it. It's not funny otherwise. It's just it's it becomes but, like this righteous vengeance thing. And I indeed, uh, part of the plot is uh, Chloe Moretz hires Tom to be sort of like the bouncer to get rid of the mouse, and yeah. so Tom is employee of the hotel for a little bit. This cartoon cat. Uh, it, an interesting, really surreal wrinkle I appreciate about this movie oh, yeah, is. Tom and Jerry are cartoons. They interact with human beings, and people just sort of take it in stride, a la Roger Rabbit. Yeah, they don't talk, uh, but they're anthropomorphic and can communicate. Yeah, they have human intelligence. Yeah, um, they can do charades. Yeah, and uh, there are talking cats in this world, so maybe Tom is simply mute. Well, that just breaks the rules right away. We like we meet like in an alleyway a bunch mm. of cats who can talk, and then uh, Spike the dog, who is sometimes uh, mm. Tom's other antagonist, uh, who is played here by. Um, it's not uh, Bobby Cannavale, <laughs> right? A funny actor, mm. uh, but uh, he pl- and, and good casting for Spike actually. Uh, but again, they can talk. Mm. 
why, why can't Tom and Jerry? Like, they're the only ones. It's kind of arbitrary. But uh, it's it's established that in this universe, all animals, like, it's like in Pokemon. There aren't yeah. other animals. There's just sort of these fantasy creatures. All animals in this world are animated. Yeah. So, and, like, and so when they go down to the fish market, all of the dead fish are cartoons, which means yeah. humans eat cartoons in this world. Yeah. Or they go to a museum and there's like an, a, a skeleton of like an animated mammoth. Like It's a dinosaur. It's an animated like, dinosaur. And you're just like. The bones are animated. So yeah. they can die <laughs> and humans eat them, hmm. even though we know they're intelligent. So there's. And maybe we thought, maybe we, maybe this. Maybe this doesn't work. You know what this needed? This needed some kind of like completely inappropriate, crass, like sausage party style comedy. Oh, they were never going to do that. No, no, they wouldn't. But, you know, like ha- having people sort of, you know, sort of freaking out saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm eating a fucking cartoon. Uh, <laughs> I would have loved to see because there's there's you have, a, you have a chef in this movie, the fancy chef. It's led by Ken Jeong. Mm. Um, he has almost nothing to do. <laughs> you, you see Ken Jeong at the beginning and you expect him to kind of. He's, do he's, something. I mean, he's he's a delight. I love that guy. He's, but he's yeah. usually funny, but like, it, it's just you expect it's it, it's like Chekhov's Ken Jong. Like you see Ken <laughs> Jong in the movie, and you expect you eventually this is going to go somewhere, one, yeah. and he'll get to do something funny. And at one point, he gets to like beat up a wedding cake, but it doesn't really work as a joke. So, but that would have been your your in where like Ken Jong is like in the kitchen working with animated meat. And he's just, just like, ah. It's a very, very surreal detail. Yeah, it's super fucking weird. Uh, th- there's a lot of energy. It moves, like, at a decent clip. It's, I've seen films, like, of this stripe that are just ag- abrasive and difficult to sit through. And this mm. one at least slides off your skin a little bit. It's, it's. I'm relieved that it was innocuous. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been worse. Obviously, yeah. it could have been worse. It could have been more shrill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it could have been. There are many opportunities here for this movie to be weird, or sexist, or racist, and you know, there's a lot of that in a lot of comedies where people don't think anyone's paying attention and they go for lazy jokes. And it's not a lot of that. There is one really bad, like completely, like this does not belong in this movie joke. When they go to the pound, there's a scene where Tom and Jerry mm. are picked up by an animal catcher. And one of the cats makes a very inappropriate prison movie reference. That's just, <laughs> al- no, no, kids shouldn't get it and adults who would get it would go, why the fuck is that in a kid's movie? That's so um, fucking weird. How, why like, would you, why, someone had to a- come up with that joke suggest it to other people, animate it, get people to voice it, put it in front of an audience, and then all say it's like thousands of people had to sign off on this joke. And it's completely inappropriate for a kid's movie. It's really fucked up and weird. Having having survived through the dark era of DreamWorks feature animation, yeah. um, I've, I've seen worse about yeah. re- references for parents. Well, I remember when uh, Patton Oswalt played um, Humpty Dumpty in uh, Puss in Boots. Mm. And he had a joke about his time in prison, which also made me go, really? In a kid's movie? Isn't this really dark? This doesn't put anyone off? No one? This is really fucking weird, man. Well, it's dark, but at the same time, it's just the laziest joke. That's my point. It's lazy on top of it, but it's also 
it, yeah. it's souring. It like it mm-hmm. doesn't make me like 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 oh what a cheerful kids movie. Mm-hmm. Like no. And uh, and one one last really surreal detail. And this reminded me of Scoob from last year. Uh, you mean Scoob? Uh, Scoob. Uh, that's an exclamation the, point. The uh, I don't know whom they're trying to court here, other than like fifty five year old animation buffs. But there are a lot of in-references to other Tom and Jerry cartoons. Like, all of those talking alley cats mm-hmm. showed up in Tom and Jerry cartoons yeah. in the past. Uh, Spike, the, uh, the the other animated cat that Tom falls in love with. These are mm-hmm. all characters that showed up in Tom and Jerry cartoons. The fact that t- uh, Tom is a pianist is from mm-hmm. Cat Concerto. Mm-hmm. One of the Rube Goldberg devices Tom makes is mm-hmm. in it. There's a lot, yeah. Who's going to get the, Who's going to get those jokes? <laughs> It's like in Scoob, like who who really cares that we're going to have an, an interconnected Scooby Doo Hanna Barbera universe with Grape Ape in it? I mean, <laughs> admittedly, is, that's is, is Grape Ape the big sell here? Admittedly, that's I, that the cartoons have been doing that I mean, for a long time, and, like, and it, been... it just it, it really frustrates me. And I saw this happen with all the Marvel properties when they like throw in some really obscure character. And all of a sudden, scads of people claim to be experts at this really obscure character, as mm. if they they were just as popular as Spider Man this whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you didn't care about them. I feel like you put in those references. Those well, are like one, li- one to show that you've done your homework. I think that's part of it. Like, yeah. if we have to have other cats, why not make them other cats who've been in Tom and Jerry? Mm-hmm. Isn't that a nice shout out? So that that part that that doesn't bother me or anything. I feel like you incorporate original material from the cartoons. If it helps, if it's like part of the characters and helps tell their story well, hmm. that's the trick. So, like, you 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 don't shout out to something just because it existed. You shout out something because it makes the character who they are, and you've incorporated it into your narrative in a, in a good, positive, clever way. Here, they're just sort of sitting there. The whole movie is just really just kind of fucking there. I I want us to give a shout out. To the one member, I think I think Michael Pena showed up to work. Mm. I think Chloe Grace Moretz is doing the best she can with what she's got, but it's not a lot, and it's really just she deserves so much better material than this. Mm. Uh, Colin Jost just again didn't show up. <laughs> uh, but the one person who I actually like, I wasn't like super familiar with um, as uh, as a character actor. Like I've seen him around, but for whatever reason, uh, is uh, Rob Delaney. Oh, was the hotel manager. Yeah, you may remember when he played Peter in Deadpool 2, which is a very mm. funny joke. <laughs> Peter is a very funny joke, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but uh, he plays the hotel manager, and he's playing... Okay, we've talked about this before, about how there are certain character actors who, when they pass away, we don't get another one of those. Mm. So, like, when John Polito passed away, if you don't know the name, Google it. You'll see him and you go, oh, that yeah, guy. That guy. We only had one of those guys. Like mm-hmm. that guy, we just we, they broke the mold when, when when they had him. Or Michael Jeter. We don't have another Michael <laughs> Jeter, and that's sad. He was mm-hmm. amazing. Or JT JT Walsh. Walsh. Yeah, that's one. Um, I think Rob Delaney has that potential. I think he's got this kind of Phil Hartman-ish kind of exaggerated caricature vibe, but he works in any movie. Mm-hmm. Like you fit this type of characterization in any movie, even if it was kind of serious and it would be fun for a bit and not ruin everything. Yeah. He's playing exactly the character, this somewhat dim-witted hotel manager needs to be. Yeah. And it's a tough gig and I think he does a pretty good job. And I just want to say, I thank you for coming to work today, dude. <laughs> you, you did, you did good. 
I think Rob Blaney yeah. is, the, is um, the MVP here. Yeah. A, a lot of these uh, adaptations of uh, older uh, comic or cartoon properties tend to get the cold shoulder from a lot of critics. They, they rarely are comedy classics. Uh, I remember Garfield's got kind of mixed reviews. I actually uh, still haven't seen either of those Garfield movies. Okay. Um, they're, they're okay. You know what yeah. you're in for. I, I think I, I hated Marmaduke. Yeah. I didn't see Marmaduke. Marmaduke was quite bad, but uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it can be done because I've seen the adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah, you go. And they and they hit the nail on the head with that one. Now that was like twenty years ago at this point, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a way to play with sort of an established property in a way that can feel modern and and still be really really funny and energetic and joyous. And this is this was an animated movie. It wasn't like a hybrid mm-hmm. like all the other examples you gave. But I thought the Peabody and Sherman movie was great. The Peabody and Sherman movie was good too. That's really, clever. those are both Jay Ward. So maybe uh, they need to. Make another Dudley Do Right. Well, I think I think they're well. George of the Jungle was a good one too, and Mm. I think those the the humor in those is still pretty distinctive. Still, maybe more modern, I I suppose, less old fashioned. I also think with Peabody and Sherman, they found the heart of it Mm. like really well because they made it about made it about queer parenting. Yeah, made it about (laughs) having a queer parent. Like that's Mm. what it was, and how uh, they the Peabody felt like. He needed to work overtime in order to be a good dad because he would be ostracized. Mm. And um, that's a good heart for a movie. And they handle it really good. Like, I think that movie's fun and sweet <laughs> and clever and all the time travel stuff is funny. Like, that's a good film. I'm not against this in principle. And again, I think if you would simplify it, if you'd streamline the narrative, like... Instead of having all of these myriad characters and there's like a funny bellhop who actually is kind of funny, but but like all of these characters are just running around doing their own thing. What if Chloe Grace Moretz was getting married and everyone here was really, really snooty and then like Tom is their cat and it gets involved in like you, you, you can just doesn't have to be this complicated. Yeah, you just create a system. You, you build like uh, one of those like pyramids of champagne glasses uh-huh. and you just release the bull in the china shop mm. that's it that's all it needs to be they, they did that in ferdinand though did they actually there's a liter- literal bull in a china shop in that one well i mean if you're gonna do it <laughs> i don't think i would have been able to resist that joke either no 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 i think it's that that's that's the elephant in the room. <laughs> or the, the bull in the China shop. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, anyway, uh, Tom and Jerry, I, I was thinking about Tom and Jerry about how like this movie is in theaters now. And apparently mm-hmm. it's actually pretty good in theaters. And I, I can't imagine being in quarantine for a year and then coming out and the movie that you see mm-hmm. is Tom and Jerry. It's like, it'd be like a groundhog seeing its shadow. You're just like, <laughs> I'm going right back in. This is where we're well, at right if, now. I don't know, man. If, if you're a, one of those people who likes to take, you know, a bunch of kids to a friendly kids movie and get a bunch of food and just sort of make a day of it, Tom and Jerry is going to fill that, fit the bill. That's why films like <sighs> this tend bar, to do dude. pretty well. It was a, technically a hit at the box office. It's one of Such the, as it is. So, you know, as, as, as it stands right now. But yeah, it actually did well in a tr- more traditional sort of way. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. yeah, I just again, it's again, again. Well, that's what these animated movies. That's what these movies do. Yeah. There, there I think usually this... isn't a lot of competition for kids' movies, mm. so parents want something to take their kids yeah. to, and mm. so, and every time you buy, when a movie like Tom and Jerry is in theaters, almost nobody buys one ticket. Mm. 
you're usually going with your kids. Yeah, a large group, a big family gathering. So one person going to see it becomes four tickets sold and a whole bunch of popcorn. Mm. So they make money. I get why they're made. I just think they can also be good. They can, they can be good. And like, I'm, why I'm not? not? Sure. Let's, I'm not let's, sure. let's do it. Again, I'm not sure how good Tom and Jerry can really be, but you know, if you're going to make them into a, a kind of bland mainstream entertainment, this is this is what it would look like, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, as we, as for uh, a f- the the one film that's going to bring everybody back, I think we all learned our lesson with Tenet. This idea that yeah. Tenet was going to be the one that was going to open is like just, everything's going to start dying down. Everybody's going to rush back to theaters to see Tenet. That's the big one that Warner Brothers was really really banking on, and they had to keep on pushing it back and keep on pushing it back. And then it came out and it was got a, a lukewarm response at best. Yeah. Uh, we're we're no longer holding out for the big one. Dune is not going to be the one that's no. going to bring people back. No. Uh, Black Widow is not going to be the one that bring people back. No, it'll probably it's, do okay. But the, the, like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's these like films are going to be watched and they're yeah. going to be talked about. But yeah, there's not going to be like one gigantic thing where like the dam bursts and everybody's going to be back all of a sudden. Yeah, like maybe if like the pandemic hit and they hadn't released Avengers Endgame yet. Yeah, that one might have been like the oh my god we're yeah, all well, fucking waiting for this cliffhanger for, to be yeah, resolved. If, if it was yeah the second part of a cliffhanger, so this big yeah. three hour thing which is nothing but superhero like, action. Maybe, yeah. but even then, I think some people are going to be gun shy. So mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. We'll see how uh, it goes. Speaking of Avengers Endgame, the directors of Avengers Endgame have a new film this week as well. That's a good set. Thank you. I was going to brought with, it up. I was going to go with speaking of reboots. <laughs> But uh, fuck it, let's 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 talk about Cherry, which I didn't All see. Right. So you're gonna have to guide us through this. All right, Cherry is uh, the latest film from the Russo brothers, Anthony and Joe Russo, who uh, made a name for themselves directing uh, several of the Avengers films. They yeah. did. Um, I think the first one was Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Yeah, they did Winter they also Soldier, did, uh, Civil War, Captain America: Civil War. They did the two gigantic Avengers uh, two part movie at the Infinity end, Infinity War, and Endgame, and Endgame, and. Yeah. Um, if they uh, if they have a distinct talent, if it, you know, the one thing you can mark as markedly theirs aesthetically in this in that series was that they were really good at sort of second unit action stuff. They were able to put these gigantic, massively complicated action sequences into play. Yeah, uh, in a way where clarity was maintained. Thank goodness, clarity and character. Mm. I think the thing with the Russo brothers, these guys uh, got their big start uh, with. Uh, well, you com- mean Dupree, but... Well, uh, no, Welcome to Collinwood. Oh, okay. People forget about this one. It's a uh, mm. uh, it's a remake of something. What was it a remake of? Big Deal on Madonna Street. Mm. Uh, and it had a great cast. It had and George Sam Clooney, Rockwell, Sam yeah. Rockwell, Gabrielle Union, William H. Macy, Michael Jeter, uh, Luis Guzman. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a heist comedy. And then that led to You, Me, and Dupree, which was a film about you and me and... Dupree. It's an awful film. I've never Dupree. seen it. It is just brazenly terrible. And and I and then they didn't make a feature film for eight years, but they were doing TV, and then they did an episode of Community in which uh, a game of paintball turned into a John Woo movie. <laughs> and it's a great episode of television. Please see it. It's, if you, even if you've never seen Community, it's so good. Because it's a totally different from anything else on the show, and yet totally consistent with everything else on the show and it shows that they can have a lot of fun and they're actually pretty good at action so they were enlisted to do winter soldier they took it seriously it was a major tonal shift for them 
there's some funny bits in that mm. movie, but it's mostly like a like pretty spy a, thriller. It's pretty a ter- terse film, yeah, tonally. And uh, yeah, and then it turns out they're. I think it's just the Russo brothers, as near as I can tell. They're good team players. Mm. You make them part of a dynamic. You give them a job to do. They do that job really well and efficiently. Mm. What I haven't uh, seen is them do interesting things on their own. Well, here's their first chance to prove what they want to do on their own. Uh, this film is interesting if you try, if you consider it in terms of uh, the the big kerfuffle that happened online over uh, some comments that Martin Scorsese made. Oh, yeah. Martin Scorsese said a lot of these superhero films aren't really cinema. He didn't consider them the kind of challenging adult art that he likes. I think he equated and, them uh, to like roller coaster rides. Yeah, they're they're, like they're these big yeah. fun rides. You go, you have a good time, but you know you're not here to like ask hard questions or challenge your soul. And you know the emotions are all kind of grandfathered in from this big TV series that you've been watching. And he he had some points to make, but this got uh, under a lot of fans of those movies' skin. This then you know a, a lot of the. Uh, Comeback was, oh, what does Scorsese know about movies? Uh, which, you know... Which is one of the funniest sentences ever like, uttered. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the comeback to that was, have, have you seen Scorsese movies? Uh, I've seen a couple. All he, all he makes is gangster movies and crime movies. Uh-huh. Well, he's, he's made a couple. First of all, those are very good gangster and crime movies. Oh, those are phenomenal movies. S- secondly, that's like maybe a fifth of his, of his filmography if we're being generous. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> if, you, if you start including like Boxcar Bertha and mm. some of these things that are kind of tangential, but mm. like, yeah, he's made a ton of films in a wide mm. variety of like genres. That, that wonderful gangster movie, Silence, or uh, yeah. you know, Age of Innocence. I, I, think, I think what happened there is that uh, Scorsese, along with Coppola, but Coppola only did it the once, defeated find the modern gangster movie yeah, yeah. with uh, Mean Streets and then Goodfellas and Casino. Mm. And it feels like every gangster movie has to comment on those in some way. And so it's not so much that that's all he did. It's mm. that all, that's all people who superficially follow him know about because those are the big ones that made like this gigantic yeah, cultural yeah. impact. It's like, oh, he's making another one with the Irishman. You know what? If you take, if you look at all of his gangster movies, the Irishman is maybe the most important one. But uh, anyway, yeah. uh, I bring it up because Cherry is very much a Scorsese movie. Interesting. It's uh, it takes place in the early two thousands, and it's about a young man who's never named. Uh, I, I think, in fact, uh, he through a portion of the movie he is a soldier in in uh, I think it's Desert Storm and or no, it's in Afghanistan. And he uh, his name tag on his uniform only says soldier. He doesn't have a name. Hmm. Uh, he's played by Tom Holland, who uh, was in the Avengers movies. He played Spider Man, and He's woefully miscast. Oh. He does not have any kind of daring edge to him. He's this just the sort of baby face guy who's, uh, as an actor, he's clearly trying to prove that he can do these kinds of edgy material, and he's really pushing himself. But he is not getting a handle on this kind of material that's, at all. That's a shame. And neither are Anthony and Joe Russo. Uh, oh. They're they're throwing all of these pop music references, and they're spinning the camera around, and they're doing all of these stylized things to tell this really kind of dark and edgy story. And they have no idea what they're talking about. This film is about nothing. Well, it's two it? hours and twenty minutes of nothing. Well, what's it uh, trying to be about? Like, walk so us through it, the plot a little bit. It's we uh, we start with this young guy uh, who is uh, he's like a little bit detached. He's a little bit socially awkward, and it follows his journey through. Uh, he is a soldier. He experiences some PTSD. There's this long training sequence, and then he goes to war for a big portion of the movie. He has a a girlfriend that he met back home. 
And when he comes home, he's uh, suffering from PTSD and uh, and also some physical pain. So he ends up getting put on uh, pain pills. He ta- he gets addicted to the pain pills. He starts getting more and more pain pills that he doesn't need. His girlfriend gets really, really upset about this. In a scene, just to spite him, she starts eating all of his pills in front of him, in, uh. which is a little bizarre. So she immediately gets addicted. And from there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to heroin. And then they're both, there's a long sick rush sequence where they're just sort of addicted to drugs and, and being then it's miserable just the movie together. Naked lunch. Not quite. <laughs> if, it, if it had gone that crazy, like they just go into another dimension because they're yeah. so high all the time, that would have been something. And then he turns to robbing banks to pay for their smack habit. I mean, look, hmm. it's a tough line of work, hmm. but lucrative. Uh, this is a bunch of like slick company men trying to make something that is really kind of daring and edgy and really trying to show the warts and all uh, soldiers experience of what trauma and drug addiction are really like. This film doesn't know anything about trauma or drug addiction. It only has a few stylized things that are clearly cribbed from other movies, mm. uh, clearly cribbed from, you might say a Scorsese movie. Mm. Uh, you, know, you, you watch something like Goodfellas and you watch this and this, these guys are like clearly fans of Goodfellas, but they don't know what they're trying to say with this material. I feel about this the same way I feel about the Mauritanian. And I said this, uh, that it was really odd to see how we're, we've now moved far enough from like nine 11 and the wars that followed it to the point where we can use that as fodder for pretty slick Hollywood entertainments now. Yeah. Like generic message pictures. Yeah. The time has long since passed that we can have that reckoning. Now it's just cheap melodrama. And I feel the same way about Cherry. They're really trying to blow the lid off of the soldier's experience. Look, the Hurt Locker already won Best Picture. Right. We can't do that in 2021. Did you see? And we especially can't do it when you're going to sell it to me on this really shiny platter using like hot young teen idol magazine cover actors as, as your conveyance. What's weird to me is. Um, and again, I don't know. I, I didn't. I don't know what the Rus- I didn't see the movie, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the Russos have said about it. But um, the idea of soldiers returning home from war and they're damaged and they turn to crime mm-hmm. goes back a long fucking way. I mean, yeah. that's that's. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why there was this explosion of uh, gangster violence following World War One. There was a whole generation of uh, young men and uh, they were trained how to use guns really good. And when they came back, all of a sudden there's a great depression and shit. What are we supposed to do? So we only know how to do one thing. And so we're going to rob banks. And that's what a lot of people did. I mean, not like not the majority, but a surprising number of people did. Mm -hmm. And there were movies about it, like Scarface. Uh, That's the original Scarface. The original Scarface, which is really fucking good. Do not let Brian De Palma like rewrite all of history. Watch the original Scarface. It's a great movie. And the De Palma Scarface is exhilarating as well. It's it's its its own thing. I'm not a huge fan, but I definitely I appreciate its um, I appreciate its outlandishness. I guess Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's a film about excess, and it is told excessively, and that Mm -hmm. makes sense. I just find it a little exhausting. Um, it is over three hours long. It's, it's, long, a, it's a lot to take. It's more than it needs to be, right. but I appreciate what, he, what what they're doing, and I know why people love it. Um, and then we also had films about this, like after Vietnam. I mean, that's what Dead Presidents was about. Uh, a, de- well, Dead Presidents. Um, my favorite is Rolling Thunder. We've talked about Rolling Thunder a lot. Yeah, on this, not, this not a heist movie, but yeah, the, yeah, basically, it's about mm-hmm. damaged people and you know coming home from 
Vietnam and mm-hmm. juggling and yeah. But there are good and, there are good ways to tell that story and there are bad ways well, to tell I, that I, that's story. That's the thing is I think you need to actually have some genuine connection to the material in order mm-hmm. for that to feel real. Yeah. And and here here's where uh, I think we're getting a, into a little bit of tricky territory. It's been said uh, by me and other critics as well that a lot of superhero movies in general and the Avengers films in particular are pro-military. Uh, some uh-huh. have even called them least... pro-military propaganda. They're not, yeah. not necessarily sponsored by the government, but they do sell the superheroes as a freelance military force. Uh, and also it's mm. worth noting that uh, the military uh, often works with motion pictures. Yeah. The, uh, no. If they want to use things like, you mm. know, actual jets, actual uniforms. And often when that's the case, they have screenplay approval. Right. So you yeah. can't have somebody um, making some sort of flip comment about the military. That's that, yeah. then you don't get approval. I, I, I was just not reading... all of the Avengers. I actually was looking it up. Not all of the Avengers movies got uh, uh, approval from the military. Yeah, I heard the but Avengers. Some of them yeah. did. And well, yeah. the one I'd read about was um, I wish I could remember where this is from, but apparently there was a line in The Incredible Hulk, which is actually shows the military being the bad guys in that mm. one. Um but there was a line in The Incredible Hulk where someone said, like, a lot of people would kill themselves to get this job. And they were like, we cannot associate the military with that line of dialogue. So they had to take that out. Oh, because it says kill themselves. Yeah, oh, and that's then that's a touchy yeah. subject no, for yeah. a lot of reasons. But it was also a flippant line. But that's the level of control the military mm-hmm. can have. And also Disney doesn't want to piss them right. off. So... Uh, so there's a lot of that. So there's there's a lot of towing the not just the Disney company line, but also like a very kind of pro military line in a lot of these uh, these Avengers movies. A sort of a nationalistic line. If exactly. You know. yeah. They're they're widely jingoistic. You know, you, you can look at them and say, oh no, they're from all over the world, but they're a United well, a United States military like force. Here, here's here's a, here's and, a key example mm-hmm. of this. Black Panther, mm-hmm. one of the one of if not the most political movies that Marvel ever made. Yeah has like a really positive depiction of a CIA agent. <laughs> there you and go. you're just sort of like, ha! Huh. I mean, he's, he's a... Wait, wait, you took your you took time to put that character in the it's movie. Like, he's like a you know, fifth string supporting but character. He, but they, yeah. they went out of their way to include him, didn't they? He did mm. not need to be in that movie. <laughs> he, he flies a jet at the end. Yeah. <laughs> that one, one guy. I like Martin Freeman fine, but mm. he did not need to be in that movie. You could have totally written him out of that mm. film, but they went out of their way to put a CIA agent... Mm in a positive light in mm. this movie about, you know, uh, what was it? What, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, mm. about, about politics, about international politics. Yeah. And, uh, almost like the sort of an Monroe, Monroe doctrine kind of way. What is Wakanda's responsibility to the rest of the world? Mm. So interesting choice. Uh, so, uh, the Russo brothers didn't make black Panther, but they did make some of the higher profile, uh, Avengers releases. They've, they're making these really exciting action pictures that have a very pro-military message. Now they're making one about post-war trauma, and they're whiffing it. Yeah. So I think they're not used to this kind of story yet. They're still a little bit high on slick, violent spectacle. And there's a lot of slick, violent spectacle in Sherry. It, it's an A release. It, they did a lot with their camera work, and there's a lot of clever angles. But you don't need that kind of storytelling mm. to tell this dour story of violence and addiction. Mm. Uh, you, you need something a little bit ground, a little bit more down to earth. You know, I, we recently saw The Deer Hunter, and it made me long to watch The Deer Hunter. That's what Cherry did to me. <laughs> I want the, a two-hour wedding sequence stat. <laughs> like, you, you slice off the wedding sequence, Deer Hunter actually has some important things to say and has some excellent performances. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like Cherry was a disappointment. Cherry, yeah. Cher- so, yeah. Overall, Cherry, very disappointing. That stinks. Um, 
Well, uh, let's let's move on to some movie that uh, uh, does not stink, at least not out loud. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the reboot of Wrong Turn. That's right. This is the seventh film uh, to bear this title. Yeah. Uh, we watched all of the other Wrong Turn movies. I guess I saw the first one, and then I saw two through six, which are all now just one gigantic movie in my brain. They yeah. all just sort of mash together in this big vat of muck. They get increasingly disgusting as this series goes on. Uh, the Wrong Turn series, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, started off theatrically with the first film. Hmm. Uh, Wrong Turn starred Eliza Dushku and other people as well. Uh, and uh, they were just a bunch of kids. And uh, dang it, they're driving through the Deep South. And they take a wrong turn, and they fall afoul of hillbilly murderers. Uh, in, like, inbred hillbilly murder yeah, cults. Just, just the worst, li- the worst cliche. From, <laughs> li- lifted from so many other movies. Uh, yeah. The Hills Have Eyes and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and others besides. Yeah, just, uh, just the deliverance. Like, just mm. every cliche mm. you could possibly have. It's not a high-concept movie. They mm. go into the woods. The woods are filled was, with, yeah, so with dudes in the woods who kill people. It was and they're all, all look weird. And already a cheap knockoff when the first one came out. But it was kind of noteworthy at the time because it was kind of... It was just the, a, it, a little was, more violent. It was, well, it, was in that, it was in that gap between Scream and, like, Hostel and Saw. And mm. it kind of, like, bridges that gap because it's, like, this teen movie and it's, like, we're going to do this sort of teen horror movie but it's going to have that edgy Texas Chainsaw Hills of Eyes vibe to it um, and then it started going straight to video and the straight to video ones like the first movie's fine it's not particularly interesting but you can watch it the straight to video ones are nihilistically dark <laughs> there's like that's when they just went full bore torture and they like just horrifying you know, like the, all, way, 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 I think there's a lot of cannibalism if the, I recall the, the first sequel wrong turn two is actually kind of funny and it's about like they're trying to shoot a reality TV show in the woods and I think it was directed by Joe Lynch who's actually a pretty good director so he brought some fun ideas to it but from three onward it is just dark dark darkness uh, one no of them was about parents. one of them was about <laughs> one of them was about escape prisoners, and that one feels like a script that had nothing to do with Wrong Turn that they just added Wrong Turn characters to. Mm. The sequel, sorry, the prequel, Bloody Beginnings, has characters like protagonists who do some of the stupidest things ever. But my God, does it get under my skin? It's just so bleak. It's just so depressing. I, I the ending of that movie just depressed me for a long time <laughs> just the the final fade of like the protagonist of the story i was like oh, oh oh that's just it's as though the characters lived in a world that hated them like the universe was designed only for villainy hmm. and then they started making them they did a couple of sequels where um oh who's the guy who plays pinhead doug bradley doug bradley doug bradley shows up as like the new uncle of like the creepy uh, dudes, yeah. it's like and, the ringleader now. Yeah, and so he uh, there's this whole bit where he's like captured by the law, and like all the the weird cousins are like taking over a whole town and killing people to rescue their cousin. And then there was this weird one that played like a Euro sleaze movie about someone who inherits a hotel, and all the cousins are living in the hotel, and there might be sort of some kind of weird cult prophecy, and that felt uh. like its own, that felt like its own thing as well. Hmm. But um, the basically what it turned into was. A whole bunch of people are going to die, and these three weird-looking dudes are going to do it. There's not much to it, really. So, if you're going to reboot a horror movie franchise, 
fuck it, reboot wrong turn. Like the, there's not <laughs> there's, that much to no it, really. Mythology to this one, and, yeah. and the sequels weren't all that popular. It's not like no, it was, they, they did okay. I people guess they followed would, they made five that, of that mythology. Like, but yeah, they, here's a, a reboot. It's called Wrong Turn. Uh, the premise is. Um, Pretty, I mean, overall, the premise is pretty much the same. Yeah, uh, it's wrong, the follow wrong, through that's a little different. Yeah, wrong, yeah. wrong, wrong. Uh, young people are on a trip. Uh, in this case, they're actually uh, rather than being the usual gaggle of horny frat kids or, and sorority girls, it's yeah. more like uh, intellectuals and doctors and young yeah. hopeful, young professional hopefuls who are really intelligent. Yeah, they make a wrong turn into the woods, and rather than running afoul of mutant inbred hillbillies. Uh-huh. It's actually a, a local community that the people who live around them know a lot about. Yeah, I don't want to go too far into too much detail right. about this because I think some of the reveals are fun. But well, th- what, what's the just, minimum we can say? I'll just say that that it's actually a, a community of people who have been living in the woods for a long time. Yeah, it's not just three dudes in a shack. Like mm. it's a whole like community, and it's at first it's got kind of this like culty wicker manny kind of vibe where mm, you're like just people like are wearing we see people wearing like deer skulls and stuff yeah which is a perfectly good addition to it mm. um and uh yeah and they are all of a sudden like being assaulted in the woods and they're falling into death traps and things and they have to fight back and then eventually uh the, they look and the gore is spectacular oh my when somebody god gets, when someone gets their head mashed against a tree we get to see that that was really more than i expected actually <laughs> uh-huh. it's been a while since i've seen a movie this gory, and i think last time was a wrong turn film so kudos for that at least um so if you're into gore this is a film for you um but uh yeah i was pleasantly surprised that by the time we really like went into this secret society living in the woods, the foundation as they're mm. called, they had an idea. They had themes. Because mm. the theme of the old Wrong Turn movies, well, the, the initial theme was the same thing. It, it always is. The idea that um, urban city dwellers have completely lost touch with uh, their you know innate primal instincts and... Uh, if they venture outside of their safety zone, uh, they're going to find themselves uh, prey to anyone and anything who has more mm-hmm. uh, propensity for violence than they do. Um, it's been done a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, the sequels, again, were just kind of pure nihilism. Just the world is horrible, hateful, and violent, and, and, and there is uh, no the, goodness, and everyone will suffer. There's also an economic undercurrent about how the well, the haves have forgotten the have-nots, and the have-nots have been neglected to the point that they've turned into monsters in the in the wilds. Right. But either, regardless of that, all of the wrong turn movies, and a lot of the films of their ilk, the Texas mm. Chainsaw movies, a lot of them, there's this othering going on here. The idea that people who live in the urbanized world, mm. you know, your, your, your blue states, if you will, uh, have an inherent mistrust or fear of people from the Deep South. Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental premise, and I don't think anyone ever played with it better than um, Herschel Gordon Lewis in Two Thousand Maniacs. Two Thousand Maniacs is kind of the crown jewel in this genre. Yeah, it's it's really gory and gross, but it's also thoughtful and smart, and actually mm-hmm. has something to say. And um, and that a lot of movies just get away with that. Like that's all we got. It's like uh, some people are scared of this idea they have of what people are like in the South, and the new wrong turn actually is about. That idea, not just about illustrating that idea, Mm. but the idea that people have this expectation of 
what the villains in Wrong Turn would be, or or that other people in the in the South are like the people in Wrong Turn. Hmm. And actually, as the story progresses, there's a lot of villainy going on, a lot of horror, but it's not the exact brand of horror you're expecting. And there are exactly actually some salient bit, points yeah, it's, being it's made. like some some uh, some actual sympathy and righteousness uh, that uh, that is on display. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that's that's neat. That's neat, and and I do love that. Uh, it starts to pile on a few twists. You don't know if it's going to go here. Then, like a bunch of time passes. Uh, Matthew Modine uh, is actually kind of a bookend. He's uh, plays the father of one of the young kids, and he's actually out looking for her. Yeah. And we see him at the beginning of the movie, and then we flash back. So we know something's going to happen with him and what he's going to find in the woods and yeah. how that might change how we were looking at some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I like Matthew Modine. I think he's a really good actor. I actually think they handled that. that that's a story structure that's <clears throat> often very annoying where uh, you see something interesting and then it says six weeks earlier. Yeah. And it, what it's usually code for is we had no idea how to begin this movie. But actually this one... It works pretty good because when we cut back to Matthew Modine, the movie has more than five minutes to go. Hmm. There's actually a lot more story to tell, and it doesn't go in quite the direction you'd think. And I think they get away with that better than usual. Um, there's some grossness. There's some stuff that I think was was unnecessary. Um, I, I don't necessarily like one of the twists that happens with uh, how a uh, uh, character played by... Um, is it Charlotte Vega who's the lead in this? Um, the, oh, who is the lead actress? Yeah. I, I think it is Charlotte Vega. Yeah. Uh, it is Charlotte Vega. Mm. Um, she is put in an impossible position and makes a choice that is the way that it's specifically handled. I don't necessarily think was the best way to handle that, but without going into spoilery detail, I can't really say why. Right. Um, I get why they did it. I think it's selling the character short, but whatever. Um, but, um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this. I think this is actually just a fully functional horror movie. Bill Sage shows up towards the end as like mm-hmm. this. Someone needs to notice that Bill Sage is one of the best bad guys we have in movies. He was the one from uh, um, uh, We Are What's What the, We Are. We Are What We Are, the cannibalism yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, That's a terrifying movie. And he's been in movies for a long mm-hmm. ass time. But like lately people have started to notice that he's like a really scary guy. He was in a cool movie uh that nobody saw it really was disappointing me uh it was called the archer the archer i think let me make sure it was because i saw this uh in uh in a film festival i want to make sure it was released under the same title uh yeah the archer so uh it's about uh and uh like a, a young uh archery like champion like a teen archery champion uh who is uh, basically railroaded by the justice system and put into the for-profit prison system, which is rife with abuse. And she ends up like running away from it. And Bill Sage, who is also an archery enthusiast, runs after her in the woods because he can't have mm. her letting people know like how corrupt his institution is. So he has to kill her. So it's two archers running each other in the woods. And it's also a prison movie. All right. Uh, and it's actually pretty good. Like it's as a, for a low budget thriller, like, if 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 like I'm trying to think of an example, like if Walter Hill had made this movie in 1984, it would be a cult classic. Okay. But because it came out now and barely got released, nobody knows about mm-hmm. it. But yeah, if you want to see like a good low budget thriller that actually is like pretty solid, The Archer's neat, and Bill Sage oh, is really really cool yeah. in it. So I'm waiting for someone like to cast him as like 
I don't know, like the new Lex Luthor or something like that. He's like one <laughs> big villain role uh-huh. away from finally breaking out and like mm-hmm. the, and getting like the big parts because he's really mm-hmm. consistently scary. Yeah, he's, he, uh, he had a really interesting role in, in a film I really like called Mysterious Skin, a Gregor Aki film. I which is see that it's a, uh, very specifically and openly about sexual trauma, yeah, uh, like, like surviving sexual abuse. Uh, really, really good film, and uh, and he's in that one. Uh, he is also in Precious. He was in Precious. He was in Precious. I don't remember. He's one of the teachers in Precious. I don't recall that at all. Weird. Uh, I don't think maybe I wasn't really maybe he wasn't on my uh, radar at the time. And that film was directed by Lee Daniels. And you know what? We got another film by Lee Daniels. Oh, you were the so master let me, of let me, uh, let me uh, Just in this episode, usually, uh, good. usually I'll just <laughs> slam one door shut and move right on. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Lee Daniels has made another movie. Uh, it's a biography of Billie Holiday. It's called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Lee Daniels is not a subtle filmmaker. I think that's fair. <laughs> Lee Daniels. I didn't see this one, but I've seen his other stuff. Um, I've seen Shadow Boxer, which is shite. Uh, it's a weird film. It, it's very. I, I recommend you see it. Yeah, it's it is very distinct. bonkers. But yeah, it is not good. I made. Yeah. He made it, Precious, which is like. Like he took every melodramatic conceit from every after school special you've ever seen, mashed them haphazardly together, and weirdly it worked. In yeah, that it's, one. it's a it's a strange film. Yeah. Uh, uh, he did Lee Daniels is the Butler, mm. which is the official title of the movie. You cannot just call it the, the title, Butler. Yeah. Like the actual name that is like registered with the MPA, just A now. I guess they took off the other mm. A, but uh, the actual name of the movie is Lee Daniels the Butler. Yeah. That's the name of the movie. So if you're in the Schmodown <laughs> yeah, and right. they ask you what film did which film did Forrest Whitaker play like the butler in the White House, it's called Lee Daniels Lee the Daniels Butler. The if you butler. just put the butler, you're wrong. So So if if you're writing a review or refer to it as Lee Daniels, Lee Daniels the Butler. Yes. Bush on the novel pushed by Sapphire. Nice. Um Lee Daniels the Butler was and and Precious and Shadowboxer. I didn't see the paper boy. Oh, the Paperboy uh, is sleazy. <laughs> I not like a good sleazy movie. I, I actually, I actually don't hate that movie. That yeah. movie is is very, very tawdry. That yeah. movie is a yellow tinged pulp book. Tawdry and melodramatic and sleazy is kind of how he rolls. He tends to to swing really big and use these really kind of clumsy, brazen, blatant images to catch your eye. And he does that a lot in the United States versus Billy Holiday because this is uh. The way uh, Lee Daniels tells it, Billie Holiday, one of the world's most famous blues musicians, uh, was on the FBI's shit list for the song Strange Fruit, which is about mm. lynching. Yeah. Uh, it's a great song. Amazing song. Uh, and it's it's well, well, well and highly regarded. Yeah. Uh, and according to the narrative of this movie, she wrote the song, she put it out. That got the attention of the FBI, and they took advantage of her heroin addiction, she was an actual addict, uh, to sneak into her apartment and put informants in her life and plant drugs on her and get her sent into prison over and over again as this weird kind of racial retribution. And they do that for two and a half hours, and that's the movie. And Lee Daniels is going to luxuriate in the sleazier aspects of Billie Holiday's drug addiction, where we get to see a lot of close-ups of needles going into arms and her kind of hitting rock bottom time and time again. Now, I understand that is a cycle with addiction, where you're constantly hitting rock bottom. Um, uh, William S. Burroughs uh, famously said once, uh, the goal 
of shooting junk is shooting junk yeah. and shooting more junk. Like it just leads to more of the same. And that, that's what fair, addiction is like. To be fair, I've seen a lot mm. of movies about various kinds of drug addiction and some of the best ones are not subtle. Yeah. They don't have to be. Uh, Billie Holiday is played by an actress named Andra Day. Uh, who just won a Golden Globe. She won a Golden Globe. She's she's great. She is able to bring a lot of kind of a movie movie type of melodramatic suffering to this mm. kind of role, but also give uh, Billie Holiday a lot of energy and a lot of character and a lot of like sass and a lot of presence in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's really, really good. Uh, I have to admit, I got a little bit swept up in the stupid melodrama of it. I acknowledge <laughs> that this is clumsy mawkish storytelling and yeah. it does, and it does uh, maybe shove the misery in your face a little too hard. And it does really reduce a lot of the, the nuance of the racism of the time into uh, like scheming white FBI, bad, bad guy boogeyman who are just out to get her for no reason. It, it feels like really simplified when actually it could have done with something a little bit more complex. Um, On the other hand, yeah. the, the nuts and bolts of it is yeah, just and, kind of fucked up racism. Be, really. yeah, bet- yeah. Between this and Judas and the black Messiah, you, you really get a, a good wide long lasting picture of what a dick J Edgar Hoover was. Uh, and just yeah. how he's one of like maybe the central villains in recent American history. Uh, he doesn't appear in the movie, but yeah, his, his presence is always there. Uh, all of the people around Billy holiday, uh, get a little too hero worshipy after a while. Nobody like really criticizes her or comes at her like as a, an equal, they're all just sort of there to, to boost her and make her seem a lot bigger and better. And there can be a little bit of hero worshipiness about a biopic that can feel a little bit insufferable. And there's some of that. Yeah. Uh, all my criticisms taken in stride. I got to say that I don't want to say it's an effective movie, but I admire the, the, the kind of chutzpah it takes to be this miserablest at times mm. and really you know, sort of get a little sleazy and get your hands a little dirty. Does Billy holiday deserve a better movie than this? Yeah. But, uh, you know, Lee Daniels is clearly trying to tell a certain kind of story yeah. and trying to pretend, you know, the warts and all story doesn't have the end all part. It's just a warts story. <laughs> well, that sounds very yeah. Lee Daniels. It's, uh, it's, that's very, it's very Lee Daniels. But yeah. Yeah, for, for some reason, this one, like I kind of I kind of started digging it after a while. I, I, I haven't seen this one yet. And I'm mm. going to. And I really mm. tried to make the time for it. But damn it, mm. life is hard. Um but yeah, it, uh, it, it debuted on Hulu. You can yeah. see it on Hulu now. Yeah, and, I'm, and I totally plan to. Um, I'm really torn on Lee Daniels. I, I actually think it's interesting. I don't like every Lee Daniels movie. Mm. In fact, there's some Lee Daniels movies I just actively don't enjoy at all. Like I don't think they're they they work. Yeah, Shadow Boxer. Uh, yeah, but it's fascinating. Mm. But like, but that's my point. Even the Lee Daniels movies that I don't like, I never dislike them because he wasn't trying. No, he's yeah, he's he tries real hard. He's pushing everything all the time. Like he, he's he's I, I, he, he, it would be camp and sometimes it is. Mm. If he didn't mean it so much and he does and yeah, I think at his best he's making he'll like do this giant swing and it'll just it'll be like a sloppy punch and like like imagine like two professional boxers are playing uh, one professional boxer is playing an amateur mm. and uh like the professional boxer just isn't expecting 
like someone to do like an unprofessional punch. Right. Now, this is a bad metaphor because I think Lee Daniels is a professional, but like you just don't expect a punch this clumsy to come at you, and so you're totally blindsided by it, and it totally knocks you out. And but, I feel like Lee Daniels is making these giant swings, and they're not always wise, but he's trying something different mm. in order to try to hit you, here's and a, sometimes it works. I here, love it. Here, here's the United States versus Billy Holiday. He's got uh, he's, he's going to get in a bar brawl with somebody else, and he t- he wheels way back. He takes a swing, misses the person entirely, but shatters four beer mugs with his fist, <laughs> and it explodes in this spectacular fas- fashion, and he cuts his hand. And you're like. Well, that was kind of impressive, too. You know, that wasn't what you intended. Like, the guy you were trying to hit is, like, just sort of like, damn, that was cool. Yeah. I'm not not mad anymore. That that was a a weird way to miss. You you missed, but it was kind of fun to look at. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of just horrible, misguided miserableism, but I feel like there's a, a, a certain kind of spectacularness to that type of filmmaking that's cool man well i know um, that that's maybe an unpopular view but i, I was on a little I, bit on this film so he, he's hit or miss but when yeah. he hits he hits hard yeah. uh so uh on the let's review some movies in our review roundup uh once again yeah. here at critically acclaimed we review movies at the end of our uh new release movie reviews on a scale of c minus to c plus the lowest a movie can get is a c minus that's below average and anything that's below average whether it's just not very good or the worst thing ever gets a C minus C is average. Mm-hmm. Most movies have some good and bad. They're average. That's a C and a C plus is anything that's above average from, we just generally recommend it to the best movie ever made. Boom. You get a C plus Whitney Seibold mm. on the scale of C minus to C plus. Where do you put the United States versus mm. Billy holiday? I'll, I'll, I'll give it a C. Okay. It's, it's, I it, yeah. fear C plus action. No, no? C, okay, C. C. Yeah, okay. It's, it's um, like again, it's not wholly successful, but I dug it. So, That's that, cool, that, man. That was me. All right, uh, Wrong Turn. Where do you stand on the reboot of Wrong Turn? Wrong Turn. You know what? I'm going to give it a C plus. All right. Uh, it's for some. The Wrong Turn franchise doesn't matter. We don't need to. Wor- we don't <laughs> need to. Wor- we don't need to worry That's, about the mythology. Matter, the is. mythology of Wrong Turn. It didn't like create this huge splash. We don't know the background of these characters. If you were following really closely, even then, you're not going to be outraged by a. Reboot. No, they changed the origin of those they characters actually, like three times in six movies. They actually put some thought into this. Gave it an interesting structure. Gave it uh, a little bit more of a serious tone, which I think works. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, uh, Gave it a lot of character and a lot of nuance and a lot of interesting new uh, twisted things to, to sink your teeth into. So, yeah, I, I dug it. I, I, I was on the edge of C to C+, plus, but I think you've convinced me. I think it's a low C+. Plus. It's a yeah. it's a definite mm-hmm. recommendation for horror fans and gore fans in particular, even though it's not like spectacularly wall-to-wall gory the way many of the other wrong turn movies were, where they were like really gleeful and the mm-hmm. decapitations and the right, disembowelings right. and all that kind of stuff. It's not that, but when there is violence, it's really gross. Um, I think it's got a great villain. I think it actually has some interesting themes and ideas. Kudos, honestly, mm-hmm. you 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 made the best wrong turn movie. Good, good for you. C plus. <laughs> yeah, not amazing, not an instant classic, but pretty cool. Uh, okay, Cherry, Cherry, big old C minus. Oh. Golly, was this one a big old donut? Uh, it's big cherry donut. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it is it is stylized to the gills, and every decision they made was the wrong one. They oh. just don't know how to tell this kind of story. That's a shame. Well, yeah. I don't know how to tell that one anyway. Yeah. And uh, last but not least, and I'm curious where you landed on this, because yeah. I know we had some back and forth. Yeah. Tom and Jerry. Oh, it's a C-. You don't have to see this movie. 
You don't have to see any movie. I, I, that's, this is true. Yeah. Uh, th- I, I'm not going to tell people what they, they I'm defen- what, what I, to see. But I'll, it's defend, like, I'll defend aspects of it, but no, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not good. Like we're, we're offering our recommendations for what to see and what not to see. Mm-hmm. And if we've ever said, don't see this movie, we're jesting. But it's just like it's our lowest uh. possible score that we can do. It's just like, you really don't have to go see this one. Uh, Tom and Jerry, uh, this movie stinks. This movie is it's not a good movie. Uh, almost everyone in the movie is wasted. There's a couple of very small supporting actors mm-hmm. who managed to break out and had some funny mm-hmm. lines here or there. Not not a lot of laughs yeah. though. I think they don't understand what makes Tom and Jerry work. I think uh, they didn't think out the plot enough to realize that they didn't need to think out the plot that hard. Uh, and uh, it's not funny. It's and you can make the argument all you want that oh it's a movie for for kids. Kids, kids deserve, deserve better good movies. movies. Yeah, yeah, kids deserve good movies. Why, why wouldn't kids deserve good movies? You don't have to like give them any slop that you can put together. You don't have to just oh this this can lost its label. Well, whatever it is, it says it's it, it's supposed to be for kids. I'll just give it to them. Like could be no, lunch, maybe could be lunch meat. Could be peaches. Who knows? Thank you. Look who's talking. But like, well, yeah, look who's talking too. No, that was Luke who's talking. Oh, was it the first one? It, oh, it, was, the, it was the fantasy sequence. Oh, right, where she's where they, yeah, it be like okay. to, to, to had, a, had a bunch of kids with him. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know my look who's talking. <laughs> I saw that movie a- like a million apologies. times. Apologies, yeah, I did as well. Uh, it's, been, it's been a while. I haven't seen yeah. it since I was maybe like eleven. Uh, but the other one I saw a lot was Look Who's Talking Three. Like now. Talking now, yeah, like with, talking with, the, now. with the dogs. I saw I, that movie way too many times. Never, I don't know why. Never saw I that. Never one. liked the second one, but the third one I saw like five times, <laughs> and I don't know why I did that. But uh, but uh, where was I going with this? But yeah, though, no, like kids deserve better movies than this. Tom and Jerry deserve better movies than this. The people who made the movie deserve better movies than this. You know, you know, it, it, it's just it, it depresses me, honestly. Mm-hmm. It really does. So that's Tom and Jerry, big old C minus. And uh, now it's time for the critically acclaimed streaming club. What did we see this week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club? Yes, over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a bunch of exclusive stuff, but also you can vote for a variety of our shows. Uh, We ask our patrons every week to vote for a film on a streaming service, usually in in a particular category. A genre or a filmmaker or a a decade. And uh, we uh, invite them to pick. And this one was Romance Movies on Amazon. And the winner was John Carpenter's Starman, a filmmaker who is not known for his romances. No, in fact, if John Carpenter has like a prestige film in his filmography, this is as close as we've gotten. It's it's the only film he ever did that got an Oscar nomination. Well, except for uh, for a live action short that mm. won, but he I think he only wrote that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is his only feature film that got an Oscar nomination, and it was for Jeff Bridges for Best Actor, which is a pretty prestigious Oscar nomination. Mm. Yeah, it was a, a, above the line, as they say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this uh, was the film he made after The Thing. The Thing uh, rather infamously tanked when it came out. Yeah, huge bomb. Um, it, it critically reviled, like nobody was yeah. into it, and which mm. is a shame because it's a great fucking movie. Yeah, it's it's been... Uh, reassessed since then uh but starman uh, it has weirdly kind of fallen between the cracks i think it because it doesn't really fit in with a lot of his other genre work mm. john carpenter is known as either a, a horror filmmaker or an action filmmaker and this is neither of those things this is a science fiction road trip romance uh karen allen uh plays the lead role and she is she's never been better i think she's excellent in this movie and uh, she plays a woman who has recently lost her husband. She's living alone. And uh, 
it's, is it in New Mexico? No, um, I, f- I forgot where they start. But um, they, they, yeah, where do they start? It's like mm-hmm. Wyoming or something like that. They, they, they're, they're, they have to drive to Arizona. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's, uh, they go from Wisconsin to Arizona. Wisconsin. So they're, they're I knew, I knew it was a W. I knew it was they're, a w. they're in okay. Wisconsin, and she's living alone in this little uh, home in Wisconsin. The first time we see her, she's watching home movies of her and her husband. Mm-hmm. So she's clearly just feeling like soaked up all of this loneliness. And uh, meanwhile, up in space, the SETI satellite has gotten the eye of has caught the eye of an alien life form of some kind. Yeah, Voyager two, um, and Voyager two was sent into space. With a whole bunch of information about Earth, mm. music from Earth, greetings from Earth. And it was basically a big old, hey, we're Earth. Come uh, take a visit. Eat at Joe's. And it was an invitation. SETI is SETI is a real thing, by the way. You hear it in movies a lot. S-E-T-I, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And there was this big push back in like this in uh, the late seventies and early eighties to start launching these probes into space that had these uh, long playing discs of information. They were like plated in gold. So they wouldn't uh, wear down for a really, really long time. And the idea was an alien could eventually find these things and hear us. Mm-hmm. And it was an invitation saying, oh, come on back. Yeah. Starman posits that it worked. Yeah. An alien found one and came to Earth to and visit us. Took us up on the invitation, and uh, but, it turns out we wasn't as and, welcome as he thought he'd yeah, be. And, and the alien st- starts to land, and wouldn't you know it, the military shoots shoots down the craft. Yeah. Crashes in Wisconsin close by, and uh, it falls into uh, Karen Allen's home, and it immediately takes the form of her recently deceased husband. Yeah. Karen Allen was married to mm. a young man played by Jeff Bridges. Mm. Uh, Jeff Bridges died not that long ago, and she's still in. She's still incredibly grieving, and she's like, we we don't really see her like we don't spend a lot of time with her before this. We see her mm. like the night this happens, and she's just watching home movies and drinking wine and crying. Like yeah. she's just she's still incredibly deep in the grieving process. And uh, so the alien comes in, and there's this great alien vision as it's like scouring around the house and trying mm. to find some form to take so it can like hide amongst the humans and do what it has to do. And it finds, and all of her photos are open to Jeff Bridges, and all of the home videos are Jeff and, uh, Bridges, so and, it becomes also, Jeff Bridges. Well, also, wouldn't you know it, she has some of his hair oh, yeah. stored in, a, in a, a scrapbook, and so the alien, like, extrapolates a body from the hair. Yeah. The scene, and this is, again, this is the first five minutes of the movie. The movie starts pretty quick. They send this, the satellite out, the alien comes down, gets shot down, lands in Karen Allen's house. Less than ten minutes into the movie... A fucking nightmare happens mm-hmm. where the alien gets that DNA and starts to form itself. And Karen Allen wakes up because there's a commotion going on and sees on the floor a weird glowing demon baby <laughs> that then turns into a weird glowing demon child that then turns into her naked dead husband. Mm. And then she pulls a gun on it because that's fucking scary. And then he grabs the gun and points it at her because he doesn't know what the fuck that is or how that works. And she passes out because that's fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's and John Carpenter has a, a just that weird knack for craft where he knows how to uh, film something and where to place the camera in order to make it seem really monstrous. And yeah. it really feels kind of nightmarish. And uh, when she wakes up, she, of course, is uh, really, really freaked out. And the 
the alien creature doesn't really know how to speak or communicate quite well yet. Doesn't really know what the body uh, it's inhabiting is quite used for yet. There's a really good bit uh, where he like just repeats the various messages we heard on the SETI satellite, just mm -hmm. trying to like hoping one of these will connect with her. Mm -hmm. And then when he in various languages too. And when he finally starts like quoting like the UN ambassador in English, Mm. It's like, okay, well, that's it. I guess I learned some English. And so he's studying English and he's yeah. going to learn over the course of time. Uh, I really think that what Jeff Bridges is doing here is fascinating. I'm reminded of uh, the original Metropolis, where someone mm. had to play for the first time, basically, in a movie, a robot. Yeah. Or when Boris Karloff played a zombie, mm. like a just a corpse that walked and had to, like, Without, like, having a lot of reference material, figure out what that would be. Now, there's a ton of reference material for playing aliens. There yeah. already had been. We already had the Day of the Earth stood still. Or, or just post-Star Wars and Close Encounters, yeah, all that we, stuff. We, yeah. we had a million, okay? What I like about what Jeff Bridges is doing is that it looks like he tried to eliminate all of those influences and start from scratch. Mm -hmm. And just say, here is this naked, naive being... Who doesn't understand context, doesn't understand inflection, doesn't understand physicality, and he's just trying things out. And all of the connection that we are making to that character is through Karen Allen, who recognizes him as her dead husband. She doesn't think it's him. She knows it's not. Mm. Uh, and she figures out pretty early on that this is a creature. Yeah. Like, from outer space. Well, she just saw him from, yeah. mutate from a baby. Yeah. So, yeah, she figures out right away. But, like, yeah, I think he's doing a really, really good job of trying to create an alien intelligence, trying to adapt to Earth from nothing and not trying to copy anything else specifically that another movie has mm. done. Yeah. And I think that's pretty admirable, and I think he mostly does a good job. Mm. And uh, I, I agree. I, I um that he's sort of like figuring out what it is to communicate and is completely unsure as to how to adapt to life on this world. And his, his inflection is really, really strange. Uh, I would love to see a movie about an alien who crash lands in front of somebody who really wants that to happen and is ready to explain human behavior. Yeah. Like a Star Trek character. Somebody who watches a lot of Star Trek. Yeah. So like that, a, that movie Paul kind of well that's more about like comic book fans so okay. that they have like science fiction movies to fall back on yeah um, because but, Star, Starman asks Karen Allen like a whole bunch of things mm. like kind of basic shit like mm. I mean, big concepts but basic questions like what is love what does it mean to mm. say goodbye and, I'd, and I'd she really love has a, a good answer <laughs> and I'd, I'd love a, a movie where they had a good answer and yeah. they actually had something at the ready but yeah she doesn't have a good answer she's you know kind of a Kind she's of an, an average working class kind of person. She's That's an ordinary the, person. Yeah, she she's an ordinary person. She's, she was going through a lot before um, this. This is a traumatic experience and, uh, for her, and it's amazing she's doing the, as well uh, as she is. The alien uh, more or less kidnaps her and says, we need to get to where my ship is. It's been taken to Arizona, and we need to go there. And well, so, it's, it's where the other ship... My ship is destroyed. The, mm -hmm. the government has that ship. It's, he's going to the rendezvous point. Oh, right. He communicates with... Uh, it. it it communicates with its home world and says, we go to the rendezvous point. It's in Arizona and we'd have yeah. to drive there. And she is terrified through the first half of this movie. Yeah. She thinks she's been kidnapped mm. by at best a creep, but possibly a genuine monster. Mm. And she tries to escape constantly. Even after she starts realizing that he's benevolent, she's still trying to escape. He's dangerous. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't like 
necessarily have her best interest at heart. How can she trust him? So but she's then, constantly yeah. running from him. But then later on, she lets him drive. So <laughs> it's a little weird. <laughs> There's a great bit where she lets him drive because she's exhausted. She can't do it anymore. And so she says, you, you, you and then, uh, he like nearly gets them into this horrifying car accident. Mm-hmm. And she says, you said you were paying attention to me. Like I was, yeah. Green means go. Red means stop. And yellow means speed up. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good That's, gag. It's a good gag. Yeah. Um, also, uh, he has kind of superpowers. I, uh, the, the creature has a bunch of little floating spheres that he can use to manipulate energy and, in one case, bring the dead back to life. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, a, a scene at a, a rest stop. They have to stop and get a food at a local diner. And there's a dead deer across somebody's hood. A hunter has stopped there as well. And... Uh, the alien doesn't understand what that is. That means what is this? This is just a dead creature. Yeah, and there, there's a great bit where they were just like, "Oh, we, they, they they hunted it for food." And it's like, "Oh, does the deer eat you?" No. Okay. Why are we? What? <laughs> like he doesn't understand the premise. Like, if, if, it's one thing if it's a fair fight, I guess, but like, no, it's just he just killed this deer. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great Why? if we actually did eat that way? It's like, <laughs> yeah. what are you having today, lion? Yeah. Well, poor lions. <laughs> actually, <laughs> Maybe animals that we haven't almost hunted to extinction. Okay, anyway. maybe that's a better example. Yeah, but uh, if, the point if, is, if the point cow, is we're, the point is we're so far us, up the yeah. top of the food chain. Uh-huh. We're so far up the top of the food chain that it's always punching mm-hmm. down at this point. But um, so he's having this conversation with her in the rest stop, and she's they're just having a long conversation about everything, and she's trying to explain to him how credit cards work. She's planning to ditch him, and he's constantly distracted by looking outside at this hunter's truck where there's a deer strapped to the hood. And eventually, when she's about to ditch him, she sees that he's with the deer, and he's brought the deer back to life. Hmm. And at that point, she's just like, well, I'm hitching my wagon to this Jesus metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Modern benevolent alien is not understood by the modern world? Gee. Like, can you imagine if, like, I don't know, like, Paul the Apostle, like, ditched Jesus at a rest stop? (laughs) Like and like and it was like oh my god I'm so glad I almost ditched you at a rest stop but then you like resurrected Lazarus I am so glad hmm. I am so glad I didn't I didn't walk faster that that would have been embarrassing I'm I'm hitching my wagon to Jesus it's gonna be great but that's the that's the vibe hmm. uh, and of course there's a big fight with a bunch of uh, bunch of assholes um, what's interesting to me is f- we just reviewed on our show episode zero the movie the day the earth stood still. Hmm. And one of the things in The Day the Earth Stood Still, classic sci-fi movie from 1951, if you haven't listened to the episode, it's about first contact with aliens, and alien craft lands in Washington, D.C., in public. Everyone can see it. There's no hiding this. And an alien walks out, and of course they're surrounded by the military, because that's what you want in first contact with an alien species. Guns. And uh, one of the soldiers panics and just shoots the dude. And uh, turns out he was entirely benevolent, and uh, that was a massive overreaction. Uh, the military in this one is, at first it seems like they're just, like, trying to find this alien. We should find this alien. Mm. Kind of a big deal. We should probably find him. We may have made a mistake here, because once they figure out it's an alien spacecraft they shot down, whoops. Um... And then eventually they start getting more and more almost inexplicably tense about it because he really hasn't done that much. Mm. The only thing he's done is get accosted by local police. 
And like there are these police, and they're they're actually like it's actually um MC Tr- Tr- Gain- it's a uh, well oh I'm it's MC of... Ganey and Dirk Blocker yeah Dirk Blocker is from uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine where he plays a cop and MC Ganey is a He's, character actor and you, you've seen MC Ganey play villains in eight movies I'm sure yeah and the whole thing is like they were just told listen we know where they are great all we need you to do sit in your car and watch them and don't do anything unless someone's life is imperiled and they're just like. Well, I don't want the FBI to get all the glory, so we're going to make sure someone's life is imperiled. Yeah. And I'm watching this, and I'm just like, what? what? Really? It goes back to the day the Earth stood still. America, uh, and hence Earth, is like the really military-minded, violent-thinking ones. Yeah. The only There's uh, a few, uh, uh, it was also part of It Came From Outer Space. Yeah. There's going to be the one person who's really kind of open to the idea of meeting aliens, surrounded by an entire village who is really, is really trigger-happy. Yeah. What I'm reminded of, though, is how, even though we've got this idea in our heads, culturally, mm. some people do anyway, uh, that the police are here to help us and the police are benevolent heroes. For a vast majority of the history of, like, our media, cops are not portrayed positively. Like, if you were just going by movies that you saw, cops are typically, they're they're often incompetent, corrupt, incompetently corrupt, corruptly incompetent, <laughs> racist, awful, violent, criminals. And often even the ones who like do get the job done, they end up having to break the law to do it anyway. Like it's just this common thread throughout so much of our fiction. Yeah. And you're just watching it now and it's almost and you just it's hard not to notice it once you start realizing that like how often are cops actually portrayed positively in movies? It's actually pretty rare. <laughs> well, uh, TV, TV, you know, TV shows. Even a, TV, a lot of cop shows are about. But how, TV, also how, look at the uh, Shield. You know, there are okay. counterpoints to that. You know, you know, how many seasons of Law and Order have there been at this point? Five hundred. There's, there's been plenty of, plenty of shows. That's that TV. Gl- glorify and say that cops are benevolent helpers. Yeah, I guess, I guess yeah. TV is doing a lot yeah. of the heavy lifting, but it feels like movies. <laughs> I haven't necessarily been on board with that. And, and Dragnet, you, I think, is the one that, that yeah, I think Dragnet, and, and if you go yeah. back to like the 50s and 60s, when, you yeah. know, going back to J. Edgar Hoover and all the stuff, you know, the FBI kind of stuff. Maybe I just don't watch these shows. Maybe that's <laughs> what I didn't watch the reality TV yeah. show cops, but, but so, there many, is, so many uh, of the movies that I watched, the villain, the, the, the cops are always bad guys in some way, man, almost I, inevitably. The best cop I've ever seen in any movie is John Candy and Follow That Bird. <laughs> just the one helpful yeah cop. he was he was a good yeah. cop damn it uh yeah you're, that's you're, an exaggeration but you're, you know you're I mean. busy watching the blues brothers uh or yeah. you know the, the cops just get into a 500 car pile up hey my watch uh, stopped <laughs> <laughs> uh there is however one benevolent character played by charles martin smith uh it was a great he was in the untouchables he was in that movie never cry wolf he, he directed, directed air bud <laughs> it's a very good director he's done and other films besides yeah he's a very talented uh, individual yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's about sort of trying to all that plot stuff about the military and trying to work through that all seems really perfunctory. Um, Starman is sort of like an adult ET in a lot of ways. It's mm-hmm. structured really similarly. Uh, they were developed has, at the same time. Yeah. And in fact, there was actually a studio that had both. They actually had both of them, and they decided to give up ET because that was the kids' version, mm. and Starman was the cool one for adults. Whoops. 
You know what? If, if Starman had come first, it would be as big as E.T. I don't think so. I, you don't think so? No, don't I don't think, think so. this has I, the same kind of magic? I think it's a good movie, don't get me wrong, but I think, I think it's e- a really I think, good movie. I think the magic of E.T. comes from a lot of incidental stuff. Um, it comes from, like, for example, the John Williams score and mm-hmm. a lot of things that Starman doesn't have. And it also comes from the fact that I think Steven Spielberg wisely told E.T. specifically from the perspective of children. Yeah. In fact, there are very few camera angles in E.T. that aren't at a child's eye line. Right. In some way. And I think that is very transportive. I think kids see a movie that's told from their perspective. And I think adults are reminded what it's like to be children and fanciful and imaginative. Hmm. And I think that's something that Starman doesn't have. No, St- Starman is a road is, movie. It, it's, it's a road movie. It's also about something a little bit more adult. It, it has a... It, it takes place uh, in Karen Ellen's life. She's still grieving, but it's more like she's reached the point where her grief is starting to stale a little bit and she's not really sure what to do with it. And that's like the worst possible time to be faced with this image of yeah. her dead husband. And of course she realizes that this thing is, uh, is really benevolent. It's actually very kind and helpful and she falls in love with it. Yeah. Uh, one of the conceits of the movie is that uh, she can't have children. And that was uh sort of like a, a a moment of drama between her and her dead husband. And because the alien has sort of Jesus-like healing powers, is able to impregnate her hmm. uh, because they fall in love and she has sex with the alien. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a little quick, but you know what? I, we, we don't really question like Sarah Connor, fucking Kyle Reese and the Terminator. Yeah, so whatever. Came, came out the same year. Common yeah. thing. I she, guess she's going through a lot. I'm yeah. not going to judge her for this <clears throat> at all. I, I like, I, I like Karen oh, Allen in this and, movie better than I like uh, Sarah Connor. Who's just sort of swept up in this big drama. At least in the first one. Yeah. But yeah, I think, um, I, I think Karen Allen's great. I was mm-hmm. never, I never really understood why Karen Allen didn't have a gigantic career. Mm-hmm. She's, wonderful she's and even, excellent and even movie. when they brought her back for indiana jones 4 mm. and she just she still had it all of that electricity like it had been a while since i'd seen her in anything and i'm just like where the fuck have you been karen allen you're amazing being more things mm. she's so great she's really wonderful i agree she's really wonderful in this movie i think she grounds it really really well um for me the only there's one thing holding this movie back Hmm. I think it's I think it's nicely photographed. I really like some of the lighting effects in the final scene. Uh, the performances are distinctly strong across the board. Uh, the thing in this movie that isn't just like kind of like the weak link, but I think actively undermines the rest of the film is the score. Oh, uh, do you think so? I do. I don't like the score for this movie. John uh, Carpenter does a lot of his scores. He didn't do this one. Mm. Uh, this one was done by uh, Jack Nietzsche. Mm. Uh, Jack Nietzsche did a lot of scores. He also did a lot of work in pop music. He played keyboards on "Let's Spend the Night Together" and "Paint It Black" for the Rolling Stones. So he yeah, was really long. He worked with Neil Young. He's, yeah. he's a, a notable musician in his own right. Yeah, and he worked on a lot of film scores. He worked on film scores for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Exorcist. Um, he won an Academy Award uh, for An Officer and a Gentleman for co-writing uh, Up Where We Belong. And uh, and if you know the... Um from village of the giants yep that was his first film score that was jack netcher yeah yep first film score uh and um listen that's 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 better than the movie 
That's, the score from Village of the Giants is better than the movie. I'll give you credit. I'm not decrying the work of Jack Nietzsche. Right. I'm not. He's he's done a lot of cool stuff. A lot of it I really, really liked. Mm. I think his score for this movie is generic and repetitive. And I don't mm. think it sells the big dramatic moments. You look at the... And again, it's easy to compare this to E.T. because there's so many structural similarities. But mm. like... You look at the ending of E.T. and there's this great bit you can watch online where it's the ending of E.T. where E.T. says goodbye to Elliot and without the John Williams score. Yeah, they, they add like sound effects so we get to yeah. hear like footfalls and yeah. dogs barking in the distance. And you realize just how like... Nothing's that, happening in that scene. Th- that yeah. scene doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because John Williams is adding inflection. He mm. is telling you what everyone is feeling at that moment. So even though if you're just standing on the outside, it would just be this weird, awkward moment... To Elliot, it's everything. And Mm -hmm. so it's telling Elliot's story really well. I don't feel like the music in Starman is telling Karen Allen's story very well. I don't think it's Mm -hmm. telling the Starman story very well. I don't think it's telling Charles Martin Smith's story very well. I think it's just sort of generically spacey. Yeah. And I I think it could have been better if it told the story better. I don't know. I think the music is sort of ethereal. And I, I think... What I appreciate about Starman is it's not hung up on a Wonderment. Now, Wonderment yeah. is something I think a lot more modern films could use. Sure. Uh, I think a lot of uh, too many, uh, especially genre pictures, are too preoccupied with being cool that they're not stopping and saying, wow, this is really exciting. It's more like, oh, yeah, that's that's a cool thing. Yeah. I can do that. Like every every um, once in a while, it's good to just have a moment where you're like, you know, this is really fucking this, cool. Yeah. Can we enjoy this for a minute? Yeah. Like, this is amazing. Just so, sort of sit here and look and just appreciate yeah. that. Um, E.T. has that in spades. Starman isn't so much about uh, awe as it is about grief. And I think as a result, overall, the film is very subdued. It's actually kind of a relaxed movie. It takes place in diners and in small roads. There's not a lot of big epic stuff, apart from like the opening space sequences. Yeah, and there's like one Uh, like truck explosion Mm. Which is weirdly kind of underplayed. Yeah, it's a moment yeah. where you think maybe Starman and Karen Allen have died, and they don't give you that long beat where you wonder. And you know it's not because the movie's only halfway over. Mm. But like, there's that moment where you just sort of dramatic, like, "Oh wow, what if they're not okay?" And then he walks through the flames like the bad guy in Terminator mm. Two or the Terminator, um, and it's cool. But it happens so fast that it's, yeah, it's not about Wonder Woman. Mm. It, not about Wonderment. It's just, meh. It's not about Wonder Woman. It's, it's not about Wonder Woman it's either. It's very distinctly not about Wonder Woman. Yeah. So it, it, it's not, John Carpenter is really good at those kinds of moments. He can he can do a good sort of big heroic action moment. He's made a couple action films. Um, <laughs> it's underselling it, but yeah. Um, Escape from New York, I wouldn't necessarily call an action movie. I don't know how else to describe it, but there's not a lot of action in that movie. Um, it comes from an earlier age yeah. of action movies where action movies weren't wall to wall. Yeah. You know, if you had like two or three good action sequences, mm. you were considered a good action yeah, movie. There's, there's like a mind bridge sequence in that movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a big fight. Like Big Trouble yeah. in Little China might be his most incidental movie where there's just like a lot of shit going on at all, yeah, all times. I love that movie. And he knows how to do, play like sort of the cool moments and play them for laughs and play them for scares. And, you know, Jack Burton jumps and says, ha ha, he shoots his gun at the ceiling and a chunk falls on his head and he's knocked out. Uh, it's a hilarious movie. It's totally bizarre. Uh, here, I think he's deliberately eschewing a lot of that stuff. He's not going for cool. He's not going for wonderment. He's going for uh, the way an adult would see that kind of stuff. A little bit confused. Uh, a little bit 
over like overwhelmed by what they're seeing. They wouldn't approach that sort of thing with awe. They'd be a little scared mm -hmm. if they saw this sort of thing because an adult knows a little bit better. And I appreciate that as an adult now, I appreciate that kind of approach to this material. It makes it seem a little bit more mature. We're yeah. looking at this from a more practical perspective. I like that. We're not swept up in the childlike wonderment of meeting an alien. We see an alien and we don't know what the fuck it is. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. I want to make it clear, I'm not asking for childlike wonderment. All right. I'm not saying that this movie needed childlike wonderment. What I'm just saying is that I don't think the music tells the story of the characters very well i just think it gets the overall sci-fi vibe okay and i think that's the movie would have been better if the score had been more on karen allen's side because you're right i actually appreciate because this isn't like you strip away the sci-fi artifice and what you've got here is one of those like elegiac highway movies like right. blacktop or something or easy rider even mm. and it's just about like yeah america man because this is about a stretch of highway between Wisconsin and Arizona. That is not a particularly mm. incidental highway. Uh, it's it's like, if you trace the road, it's like, not quite on Route 66. Yeah. Which was from LA to Chicago. But like, there aren't like, a lot of amazing like, set pieces or places where they go that are like, these gorgeous vistas or the largest ball of twine or any of these sort of like, big, like, or even chintzy, like, set pieces and locales that you think about. This is about truck stop diners and the road. Mm. It is about two adults, one of whom is grieving and the other whom represents the person. It represents simultaneously the person that they're grieving uh, for the person that they're mourning and also a chance at a new life. Mm. You didn't have to have an alien to tell that story. That could just <laughs> be a new guy that she met who looked like her husband, who was weird. Like, you could tell this exact same story, and it would have been pretty similar, except you just strip away some of the incidental stuff with the military, and you've got a, and you've got a good movie for adults. Mm. I like all of that. I think that we need more sci-fi movies and stories that are not specifically about a youthful experience. Mm. It's great to have those, but with the variety is the spice of everything. So, that part's really, really great. I think Karen Allen is really, really great. I think Jeff Bridges is really, really great. I think Charles Nelson Smith is really, really great. My Charles this, Martin Smith. Charles Martin Smith. Sorry. Charles Nelson Riley is really great into. Yeah. He, he just, just he would have been great. Damn it! He's not in this movie. He would have been amazing. <laughs> um, well, I said Alien. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on to your blank, Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I. It it doesn't quite have the impact that I was hoping it would make on that level. Mm. And I think there are other movies about adults that were more impactful and it's a kind of a shame that this one that kind of marries the sort of like hey it's terms of endearment but what if jack nicholson was an alien like <laughs> cool like let's do yeah, that what would that be i want to see that's that that's cool and yeah. john carpenter's gonna make it this is john carpenter yeah. at his most emotional his most soulful i think there are moments that are truly wonderful mm. and they're just other moments where i'm like i feel like this should be wonderful and i'm just not getting across so i like this movie a lot I, it's oh, a yeah. hard it's a if we were doing this critically claimed scale it'd be a c plus but for me this is an upper echelon john carpenter but it's really interesting john carpenter it's nice yeah, to see him yeah. out of his wheelhouse um it's it's nice to see him just handling just mature issues um which he didn't always do sometimes some of his movies are very immature but um big trouble in little china <laughs> big trouble little china escape from la mm. uh but um vampires which is just a testicle it's like <laughs> 
Yeah, it really is. It's, no, it's just it's, like it's just like a big scoop of testosterone. It's, it's, it's his so, most flagrantly so, misogynistic yeah. movie. And yeah, it's really it is not, really sexist, and that's not something I would actually say about John Carpenter. I don't think a lot of his movies would be necessarily mm. specifically cried out, called out as sexist. Like, hey, that movie's sexist. That sucks. Vampires is really it's, sexist. It's like pointedly sexist. Yeah, it's and weird. It, it was trying to, I think, trying to capture this kind of casual sexism, racism that was going on in a lot of those, like, scuzzy crime movies of the late 90s. But it ends up just being that. There's yeah, nothing to yeah, say like, about it. it yeah, just, there's it no, like, matter. comment on it. There's not enough style yeah. to really sell it. The only thing I remember is uh, in the uh, late 90s when Gene, I think it was Gene Siskel, uh, when they had their letter to the Academy, or mm-hmm. memo to the Academy, they wanted to make sure that, hey, Academy, we know you're voting this week, so we're going to do a whole episode of movies and performances that we don't want you to forget. And there would always be, like, they would each have one like, weird outlier, one weird kind, one yeah. where like because there was some of them would be like, "Hey, Bill Paxton was really great in The Simple Plan," or "Hey, don't forget the screenplay to Bound." Like they were usually on point, and then every once in a while it would be like John Voight in Anaconda. <laughs> but that, you know what? That's a it's a big performance in it's a it. hell of a performance. And I've memory serves it was Gene Siskel who said James Woods in Vampires, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, "What? I what?" No, John Boyd and Anaconda, maybe, but no, I can't really. Well, uh, He's Jim, having fun, but no. Like, the, I don't know about an Oscar, dude. Maybe an like MTV if, Movie Award imagine, nomination. Imagine <laughs> a, 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 the Clint Eastwood character that he was always playing, but a lot more talkative and just angrier. He felt like mm. he felt like you combine mm. Clint Eastwood. And uh, uh, Dennis Miller from Bordello of Blood. And you get <laughs> that, James Woods go. and Vampires, which I, is an interesting I remember pitch. in, in uh, Ebert's review of Vampires, he said, uh, he pointed out the end. It's a Western. It, yeah. it, like, it's got a Western score. It takes place in dusty old Western towns and Spanish missions. Just got vampires and vampire hunters in it. And at the end, uh, one of the characters becomes a vampire. And James Woods says to him as he's driving off into the sunset, Via con Dios, my friend. And Roger Ebert said, you don't say that to a vampire. <laughs> Via con Dios. Via con Diablo vampire. Uh, one last note about Starman. Uh, Starman, Starman made money, but it wasn't a huge hit. It, it, was, it got some awards attention, but didn't really win a lot. Uh, it didn't yield a sequel, but it yielded a sequel television series only a couple of years later, starring Robert Hayes from Airplane. Yeah. A little weird, huh? It was a sequel television series about Starman coming back to Earth to raise his young son after the Karen Allen character goes mysteriously missing. Maybe we should review that on a short-lived TV podcast of some We, we definitely need to get yeah. to Starman this year. I've been meaning to for a while, and this is the, this is mm-hmm. the kick in the pants. We've got uh, some plans for, like to do some pilots we've been wanting to do, but maybe after that we should get to Starman because... Uh, I just like Robert Hayes. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually a fun actor. He's underrated, I feel. Anyway, that is uh, that is the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, very special thank you to all of our patrons who voted for this episode. Uh, next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, we're going to be talking about classics on Tubi. And right now, the poll is still live as of this recording. It might not be by the time that the the episode goes live, but there's a new poll every single week, and every every patron, even at the one dollar a month tier, gets to vote for it. Um, right now, classics might be in air quotes because the current leader is Glenn or Glenda, <laughs> which is a classic of of a certain kind. It's a cult classic. Yeah. It's a it's a semi autobiographical film from Edward D. Wood Jr. 
You may remember uh, the production of this film playing a huge part in the Tim Burton film, Ed Wood. Uh, and it is a story of uh, uh, a person who is wrestling with their sexual identity in the 1950s uh, when, well, it was a much more conservative time. I've actually never seen it. Have you seen it? Oh, you bet I have. Okay. It's borderline unwatchable. Yes! <laughs> it is a bonkers thing. Yes! I've never... S- Ed Wood, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Ed Wood may be the worst auteur, but by God, he is one. He has a poetry has a to voice. the way he writes dialogue. He definitely has a voice. He, he, you can tell an Ed Wood line mm. of dialogue from six counties away. Mm. And it, it's just glorious to yeah. see him try. So I'm looking forward to if that wins. Yeah, yeah, and it's pretty close, actually. The second place is Stalag right. 17. It's neck and neck. So that could change. But if it's Glenn or Glenda, I'm looking forward to it. If it's Stalag 17, I'm also looking forward to it. I've never seen that one either. My friends, future events such as these will affect you in the future. My God. <laughs> this changes everything. So um, stronger, you see? Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. <laughs> That's all I'm going to take out of you. And, of course, we're going to be uh, reviewing a whole bunch of new movies next week on Critically Acclaimed. So, again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show would not exist. So if you can afford to to help the show out, we really appreciate it. And if you can't, we totally get it. Times suck right now. But if you can leave us a review wherever you find us, that helps the show out a lot. It helps more people find it. Uh, if you mention us on Twitter sometime when people are saying, hey, I'm looking for a new podcast, that alone just helps a lot. Mm. So uh, we really appreciate all the support we've gotten for the shows. Thank you for everybody. Uh, yeah, to everybody. Thank you, Everett. Thank, Thank you, everybody. everybody. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have an email address. It's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If you want to email us about anything we discussed on this episode, anything else you want to hear us talk about, uh, we have a podcast called We've Got Mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network where we answer your emails, answer your questions, talk about recommendations, listen to your critiques. We're open books. So thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody who writes in. And we look forward to answering your email. In the future, and of course, we have an Etsy store, me and M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, it's called Salt Cat Soap, and uh, new soap designs are uh, dropping later this week, and they are cool. Hmm. Michelle uh, designed a soap that I'm not, I'll, I will tell the story later because I don't want to spoil it, made me cry oh, in wow. a good way, like tears of joy. Like, I just, I'm so excited for people to enjoy this soap because it's amazing. Uh, so, over there, that's Etsy. Salt Cat Soap and Salt Cat Soap is on Instagram and Twitter at Salt Cat Soap. And that, as they say, is that. Never forget everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?